Welcome to Oilers Rig Radio 2.0, episode 8. I wrote it down this time. I'm so proud. Uh, my name is Megan Fowler, and uh, I teach high school here in Edmonton, and um, I got some thoughts about some hockey that I want to talk about today. That's really all I got. Yeah, I too have some thoughts. I'm Alex Thomas, started the Oilers Rig in 2013, uh, and have, I guess, enjoyed it since, and have some opinions on the last week plus. Hey, I'm Avery Lewis McDougal. I am the honorary 14-year-old black kid of the Oilers rig. <laughs> I am also a contributor to Sports Illustrated, uh, the Hockey News, Yahoo Sports Canada, and I do my own shows, Avery Sports Show and the Brad Avery Hour. Hello, this is Stephen Darnell, famed sponge, producer of nothing of value to either the hockey sphere or the world. In my age and race are none of your damn business. Thank you for <laughs> respecting my wishes. You- Never mind. <laughs> um, okay, it's <laughs> it's been a pretty busy week uh, since the draft, since the entry draft, uh, with sort of that end of um, negotiation period before free agency started. Uh, so let's talk about some things there. There's been some uh, some moves have been made, some trades have been made. Uh, there's been some pretty big signings happened. There's been a trade that hasn't been made, which I think is an interesting thing that we can talk about. Um, and there's been some people getting some very, very expensive contracts who, like, shouldn't have, perhaps. So I don't know where we want to start with that. Well, it would... Oh, my God. <laughs> no one should do that. Um, okay, let's talk about... Um... <clears throat> let's Actually, let's start with Seth Jones and Zacharensky. Let's go there first. And then we can talk about that versus Dougie Hamilton, and then we'll just kind of work our way through. Yeah, I thought that Chicago not only lost the Seth Jones extension, which is a lot of money and a lot of term for a player whose name now, I believe, outweighs his production, but I think they also lost a trade. Um, Columbus moving up to where they did in the first round of the draft, and then also adding Adam Boquist, who's a good young defenseman in his own right. Look, I... Columbus took a, a real shot. It was a ballsy move a couple years ago, going all in on the deadline with a team that was on the playoff bubble, and it paid off for them. Um, and Yarmo Kekalainen's gotten a lot of crap since then for a lot of things that have gone on in Columbus. But, you know, listen, they dove right into a much-needed rebuild in Ohio, and they moved out a very popular player. They made a very difficult trade, uh, and I thought they did really well in that deal. In fact, I thought every move... Uh, that Columbus made outside of maybe the Sean Corrali contract, but that's a minor thing, and they're not going to be competing for a cup in the next three years anyways. But I think what they've done uh, via trade has been really impressive. Uh, I thought the Seth Jones deal was a, a stroke of genius by Kekalon and really to add some real assets. Um, you know, Chicago, I thought, overpaid for him. They clearly think that he's going to be the next great defenseman now that the Keith Seabrook era is officially over in Chicago, that he's going to be the next big guy. And who knows, maybe going to a team um, with some dynamic forwards that Columbus doesn't have right now and with more of a winning mentality and now with a legitimate starting goaltender behind him, Columbus doesn't have any of those right now. Maybe Seth Jones just needed a change of scenery and he'll be back. But that was a crazy contract. I think Zach Wierenski is going to be uh, worth his contract more than Seth Jones will be. But I still thought him over $9 million was a big overpayment. For some reason, people don't want to be in Columbus. But um, those two contracts were eye-opening. And if you're the Boston Bruins and if you're the Edmonton Oilers, you have to be a little bit worried about those two contracts, knowing that you have to now talk with Charlie McAvoy and Darnell Nurse. 
I I, uh, I think we get in trouble on this podcast for agreeing too much, but I agree with that. Um, <laughs> the uh, yeah, Kekalina got a fantastic return for Jones and dodged what I think is a terrible contract. Like uh, Jones is probably the poster child for guys who uh, the eye test seems to love him and the stats say he's bad. Not just that he's not that good, the the stats say he's bad. And well, by his own admission, last year was not a great year. I think that he was overrated even before that. Um, so I definitely believe he's better than War makes him look. I think uh, War and Gar are somewhat overrated as far as stats go. But I do think that that at least shows that he's not the dominant force that some people uh, think him to be. I think he's not a good bet to live up to that contract. Wierenski's a slightly different deal. I think you hit the nail on the head that uh, Columbus is in that fraternity of cities along with Edmonton, Winnipeg. Um, New Jersey at times, depending on how good the team is, but at least they're close to New York, of just cities that players don't seem to want to go to. So you have to overpay to keep people. And uh, this will make, as of right now, um, these contracts don't kick in until next year, but that next year that would be the fourth highest, tied for third highest cap hit in the league. I don't think Wierenski on his best day is the third best defenseman in the league, but he is at least good. Everyone seems to agree that he's good, and Columbus, if they have to overpay to keep people, I don't know. At some point, I guess you have to do it. So I'm not pumped for them that they're paying Zach Wierenski this much money. But, I mean, you can't just be in a perpetual rebuild. So I guess at a certain point, you got to keep somebody. Yeah, no, this deal with Seth Jones, I'm looking at things. You know what? Seth Jones, he's only 26 years old. We're, we're talking about a guy who's in his mid to late 30s. He, he's not even 30 years old yet. But the Seth Jones that was hyped up and the Seth Jones we got now, he's only scored 10-plus goals twice in his career. He's only broken the 40-point barrier three times in his career. Seth Jones isn't what we thought he would be as a, pro, as a pro hockey player. But yeah, I'm surprised that the Hawks really committed to that much to him. And go kick the lion for the return that he got. Because that deal in Chicago is going to look oof. It's going to look iffy pretty soon that term and that length. But also mentioned Columbus. That's a market where, yeah, gang. It's uh, yeah. I've heard the same thing too from people around the league, from players. Columbus isn't desired. Columbus isn't this market where players like for whatever reason. You know, you know, it's a great college town, and it. You know what? I think it's sli- it's slightly above Winnipeg and Edmonton in terms of places guys don't want to go. I compare it to, you know, if if Columbus was a team that won, if Columbus went in and won conference titles and they won the division often, I think the mentality of I don't want to go there would change drastically, though, guys. Well, there was a time when nobody wanted to go to Pittsburgh either. Um... It's a, yeah, a winning team goes a long way to changing perceptions of uh, what you are. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, I'll say this. Like, I probably would have leaned towards trading Wierenski, by the way, going back to, to Columbus and that because, again, I don't think this team is close to competing. Um, and I know you can't just go complete scorched earth and get rid of everybody, but if you can get two first-round picks – a second rounder and a good young defenseman for Seth Jones. You know what can you get for Warinsky that could, you know, expedite the process? Because, you know, let's say Warinsky has three more years of being elite, and then he'll be a good player years four, five, six, and then the last two years it's whatever. You know, you're not going to have that elite production while your team's window is open. So, I don't know. I, I I think the contract A is an overpay, and B I don't know if he fits in with the window of that team, and and. Unfortunately, GMs don't recognize that. Um, you know, one who does is Steve Eiserman, who, who moved Anthony Mantha, who's a good young player. But by the time Detroit's ready to compete, 
Mantha is going to be out of his prime and isn't going to be that player anymore. So I would have moved Wierenski as kind of an aside to that um, contract note. That would work for me, too. Like, if I'm being totally honest, I don't know Zach Wierenski uh, that well. I don't watch that many Blue Jackets games, so I guess I don't have a passionate opinion on this. But my general uh, rules of thumb for the NHL is superstars are dramatically underpaid, but that second or third tier star, those guys are usually overpaid. You're usually better off not investing $9 million in one player unless they're for sure worth it if you can get this uh, nice collection of uh, returns back because the NHL, as we all know, is just so luck-driven. It's dangerous to be too top-heavy. So if you can spread those resources out amongst draft capital and uh, younger players, the Adam Boakfists of the world, uh, you often are just a lot more stable. So, yeah, I, I think, I don't know. I don't know. I think one of the things that I think about a lot when I, when we talk about, like, contracts that aren't going to age well is when, especially, you know, they're an eight-year deal or whatever, like, something like that. And I don't know that this is ever going to be something that would ever be on the table, but I do like the option, like, in, in, the, in MLB, in the NFL, I think in the NBA to a certain extent as well. Um, but you get, like, club options and player options for, like, extensions and those sorts of things. And I like the idea that like you sign say a five-year contract and you have like a club option for two years afterwards or something like that and what it does then is it sort of guarantees maximum payout for what should be the best years of production on that contract right like that's kind of the idea and then if the club is like yeah you know what we'll take the option on that or they'll let them walk or whatever um because i always feel like an eight-year contract is just for any player is too long it doesn't matter if it's an eight-year contract for Conor McDavid or an eight-year contract for Seth Jones or, it, like, it's too long because we all know that there's going to be a point in that eight years where production starts to fall off. And then all of a sudden now you have a contract that, like, isn't the value that you want it to be, even though it was valuable when you started. And, like, and it just seems that the general managers in the NHL especially get distracted, maybe is the word, by those the idea that you can sign somebody to an eight-year deal. And so then they do. And just because you can doesn't mean you should. I think that uh, the real issue is that GM's, every GM's number one priority is not winning or helping the franchise. It's keeping his job. And then after that, you worry about winning. And that um, incentivizes worrying more about the next two years than the next eight. So to some degree, as much as it used to frustrate me when the NHL would make rules to save GMs from themselves, um, nah, it turns out uh, you have to do that because I don't like seeing franchises get too wrecked by uh, GM just desperately trying to keep his job and then just subreading the future of the franchise. Yeah, especially when most of those franchises don't learn and then hire the same exact guy just with a different name and a different face, um, <laughs> which seems to be a very common thing. And you can tell which teams I'm talking about plural um, when I make that reference. But I also wonder, too, like if there's options, like player options and team options, like I still think... NHL GMs would find a way to mess that up, if that makes sense. Like, I don't know. I feel like if you had a player that opt, let's say Connor McDavid opted out after year five of his current contract, like if that opt out was coming, could you imagine the damage that would have been done trying to save him? I mean, I don't think that, like they may have traded the the actual Bakersfield Condors for a third liner at some point, like. I think I know. I I think it's a, it's it's a good idea, and I wish hockey would adapt more 
of the, like the trade exceptions you see in the NBA, the options you see in baseball and, and in the NBA. You know, I wish they would adapt more of, quite frankly, flat-out cutting players like the NFL. But I just don't think that there's enough creativity in this league to make that work. I, I just It's unfortunate, but I really don't. The problem might be that I'm uh, too dumb to understand um, the ins and outs, but I actually enjoy the simplicity of hockey's. This is how long the contract's for. You have the guy the whole time. He can't opt out. You can't cut him. This is just how long it's for. Um, I'm I'm into that. I mean, there's definitely pros and cons to it for sure. It's it's a it's easier to track. B there's more of a um, of a continuity to it. But at the same time, like. I don't know. It just it feels like we we see teams get weighed down by that. And I know people are going to say, oh, you make your mistake. Live with it. I'm in it to be entertained. And yeah. w- watching some of these eight-year contracts that are stuck in the league, it's not entertaining. Like, I think if GMs had the opportunity to cut players, and I know the NHLPA is rolling around, and uh, if I'm not careful and lock my doors, I'm going to have a sword through my back tomorrow morning because Alan Walsh is going to find its way in. But... <laughs> I, I get the Pierre would be pissed about that, but I don't know. I think that whole thing is – like, those guys get cut in the NFL, but there's still money coming in. It's not like, guess what? You don't have a job. You don't have an income flow anymore. Like, there's definitely a, a way around it to make things more creative and keep the league, A, more competitive, and B, more entertaining, which at the end of the day is what this should be all about. I agree, but I'm going to take it in a different direction. i got a three-pronged plan. First of all, I'm going to admit this has nothing to do with justice towards the teams or the players. All I'm worried about is creating a more uh, entertaining product. Number one, teams should be able to straight-up trade cap space. That would help. Um, like, not even do this, like, shuffle with different players who aren't actually worth their money. Like, nope, the Arizona Coyotes can just trade $5 million of cap space for a first-rounder this year. Um, boom. Done. Uh, number two would be... I'd change the buyout structure so that you have to give the guy all the remaining money at once to not pay for you, and then the buyout doesn't count against your cap at all. And what that would do, obviously, it still gets the players the money, so the NHLPA, in my opinion, really has nothing to complain about. That's still justice for the working man, but it allows teams to clear up that uh, that cap space, which makes for more roster movements, which makes for a more entertaining product, both puts better teams together and just makes movement. We love movement as fans. Signings, trades, those are fun. And on that note, my third pillar is um, this is a rare anti-labor move for me. No more no move, no trade clauses. Those should go in the next. Um, it's the only thing I hope the owners win. Other than that, I'm cheering for the players. But those, it just creates a more entertaining product. And I know it sucks and it really seems quite unfair that uh, you can just get told you're moving now. But you're getting paid millions of dollars. This is not happening to gas station workers. Um, this is happening to guys getting paid millions of dollars. Sometimes that means you got to go spend a couple years in Columbus. Uh, so that that's all there is to it. No more NTCs. Well, and I think the the thing I've always thought the no move clause or the no trade clause, like I've always thought that there's something about that that like you you shouldn't you should if you have one you should have to earn it somehow. Like you know what I mean? Like you it yeah. shouldn't just be a given ultimately. They're like, okay, yeah, we'll sign this deal, but part of it's gonna be this. No, and like if you're gonna have a no move clause. Then if, let's say, it could be like, if you're going to keep them around, then maybe you keep it as like a percentage of the deal. So if it's a six-year deal, you can only have no move for the first two years, and then after that, it's a free for, or something like that. Because in that way, if you're the GM, and not that I'm like, want to be on the side of, of the teams at all, but if you're the GM, like signing a player to a contract, ideally you want them to stick around, right? Like if you're signing them to a six-year deal or a seven-year deal, like you want them to be there, right? I don't know if that's necessarily true. 
I think that many deals are signed with, look, I only really want the first two years of this deal, but if it does, if those don't work out, it's going to be someone else's problem anyway. Well, but that's, and that's sort I don't of it, think the so... Oilers want uh, Zach Hyman for seven years, but the only way we could get him for three is by signing him for seven. But so then you get, so then you get your no-move clause, sure. like, for the two years or whatever, and then it's just a free-for-all. There's no modified, there's no 10-team list or 20-team list or whatever. It's like, you know, at, you know, exactly two years after you sign this deal, you can be traded literally anywhere. And you don't get a say in it because I I think that puts too much power in the hands of the players when it comes yeah, to some take of that entirely, kind of stuff. To be honest, I'm too I, I, there's too many technicalities. Well, you get it for two. You got to careful. I, like again, from the fan point of view, I like this game to be as simple to follow as possible, which is why also that we got to get rid of the overtime losses. That's the number one thing that I would. Uh, the Bettman points got to go. It just makes the the standings tricky to read. And yeah, I know if you take 10 seconds to think about it, it's actually pretty easy to understand. I don't want to take that 10 seconds. And here's how you appeal to casual fans. Make this as simple as possible so no one gets NTCs. Um, like I said, I think the players are paid well enough that uh, they don't really have much grounds for complaint. And um, that is all that I think. You know what I wonder, though? If we don't have any no-trade clause or movement clauses, I wonder if certain players would just say, you know what, I'm not going to report to, say, a Columbus or Winnipeg or Edmonton. I'm going to go play in Bern, or I'm going to go play for Moto instead until my deal is up to avoid that. I wonder, because we, we already know that so many guys will refuse to play in certain markets. I wonder, would you see uh, certain guys just go to Europe instead until the contract is over? Or whatever to avoid playing for these certain markets if there is no more no trade clauses in the league anymore. Well, I mean, players still now like Jack Eichel's got no grounds to force a trade, but he's just saying I did, I want to I want to trade, so please trade me. And if you say that forcefully enough, you can get it. There's ways to not go to the places that you don't want to go. I mean, look at uh, Jeff Carter reported to Columbus, but was just awful the whole time he was there. Mark Andre Fleury toyed with the idea of not reporting to Chicago. Sounds like he's going to. But you might see that. I'd be surprised if you see many guys flee for uh, across the pond because that's just such a huge pay cut for them. But honestly, if it happened, good for them. Burn sounds nice. Maybe I would rather live in Burn than Winnipeg also. So uh, <laughs> I, I would uh, cheer them if they ever did that, but I think that it's such a pay cut, it would be the exception, not the rule. Yeah, and a pay cut's secondary. It goes against the hockey culture, so you won't see anybody do it. That's the That's other the thing too. Thing. Is hockey has that That's true. has that cultural piece that those other sports don't seem to have. Like the the Major League Baseball's trade deadline was on Friday, and like I don't know if I was a Cubs fan, I'd be pretty sad right now because they just like their team it was just a fire sale, right? Because you can, and that's something that that's interesting. Um, in baseball that happens differently than it will ever happen like in hockey and in the NFL like I don't pay attention to trades in the NFL because it's like here's the best defensive end uh available and he goes for two draft picks and like I don't understand how this works but okay because in hockey that's not how a trade like that would work right and so um I think that like in hockey you have this team that team first mentality that the players when they they think when a player signs a deal in a place like I kind of feel for the most part that their intention is to be there for the term of the deal Right? Like, because that's sort of what's expected. But my addendum to your changes would be max term for a contract is five years instead of seven or eight. That would be something that I think would shift how some of those deals get done uh, as well. If you only 
knew for sure that at the most you'd have a guy for five years that would change the way that you look at some of those deals and the price point at some of those deals as well i've thought of that before to be honest but i'm going to disagree with you and the reason is because i grew up in edmonton and so i have a special sympathy for the columbus's winnipegs and edmonton's of the world if the max we could have signed mcdavid for was five years then mcdavid would be about to leave i think it's important to give small market teams the ability to keep their stars um <laughs> Again, it sort of, in some ways, sucks for the star, but there's no nothing stopping them from pulling an Austin Matthews and saying, I'm going to hit UFA as, as soon as possible. Like, they're usually well-paid to stay, like Zach Korinsky being the perfect example. But uh, I, I don't know. I'm not... I'm open to what you're saying because, I mean, using the Zach Korinsky example, maybe Columbus would be better off if they were only able to sign him to five years. Maybe that extra time is a bigger favor to Korinsky than it is to Columbus. But I'm still inclined towards uh, I think that teams need to be able to secure assets for for long term well maybe then maybe not like all contracts then but maybe like the UFA contract is max max term of five years right I so- would like to see a bigger a bigger bonus for re-signing your player like right now it's uh, eight years instead of seven just because I think it would be good to incentivize sign and trades so if you're the team that can't keep your star then you're still getting something out of it because you've put all this time into developing the guy. So if somebody wants to sign him to eight years instead of five, they can pay you for that privilege, Mm -hmm. which has never happened in the NHL. It almost happened to Edmonton and Toronto this year, and we decided, nah, it's really not that big of a difference. So if they made it a bigger advantage to re-sign a guy you already had, it'd be nice to incentivize signing trains. I'm always looking out for the loser team. I want them to do a little bit better. Well, that, that, you know what, though? That sign-and-trade thing was just uh, a measuring contest between two hockey men who couldn't figure out, oh, should I take a free draft pick or not? I mean, I don't care if you don't think the value was right. You're literally getting a free draft choice to sign-and-trade Zach Hyman. Now you got nothing for him. I don't. Yeah, I, I just you, don't yeah. understand that. Like... You take the free lottery ticket. What the hell's the difference between sixth yeah. and third? I I think uh, sometimes you have to hold your ground in negotiating and say, look, if the, it's worth this much to me, and I'm not, I'd rather blow it up than give it to you for less than it's worth. I think that as much as you're just cutting your nose to spite your face, occasionally, I also think there are times uh, when it's appropriate to hold the line. I think that Dubas probably should have done something similar a few years ago in negotiations with his two stars. So now maybe he's in overreaction mode, but um, and has been for a few years. But I have a little bit of time for the idea of look, we're, like really, I think this is what Holland should have done with Bowman. I'm doing you a huge favor here, and I am going to insist on being paid for doing you this favor. Um, and so I guess that Dubas didn't feel he was being fairly paid for the the value he was adding to Edmonton. I actually don't think he was adding that much value. I'm pretty happy to get out from under the extra year of the Hyman deal, but. Yeah, I mean the whole the whole value thing. It's like we know what retention costs. You're not retaining a cent. There's literally no retention there. There's nothing on the cap hit. The Maple Leafs don't pay a cent in real dollars. The Oilers are in a different conference. It's really not that much money. Oh, and he he would have he was losing nothing, but he just felt he was helping the Oilers so much. Like if the, if he had made that deal, it would have saved the Oilers about four hundred thousand dollars a year. Right. Which 
matters. And so he's like, if I'm saving you 400 grand a year, that's worth a third, not a sixth. That's a third. You give me that value or you're not getting it. Now, if they were retaining, like if they actually were retaining that money, I would agree with that. But you're literally getting a draft pick to fax two extra papers. You like, want I me just... to do you a favor, you give me a third. I'm not doing you a favor for a six. This is the ah. deal on the table. Uh, in this case where you're going to lose the guy anyways and you can get a draft pick for losing a guy, I think you take it. If this was the situation where – now, I agree with what you're saying on Ken Holland with Stan Bowman. He should have walked away from that. That's a different scenario, though, because that completely impacts both teams. Hyman leaving was always going to happen. It never impacted the Leafs in any way, shape, or form. They could have just picked up an extra draft pick to lose the guy, which just no. feels like good business to me. I mean, the whole bending the knee thing from the Toronto media, like the boy king has returned, was just ridiculous. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I just I feel like if you have a free draft pick in your pocket, like t to have him sign the paper and fax it over as opposed to not doing anything. I don't know. I just I don't feel like that's worth a third or like I think they were talking about a second round pick like if there was actual cap retention then sure I mean hell Toronto actually retained cap in trades at the last two deadlines and got six and seven round picks back like if you really want to talk if Dubas really wants to talk about what the price is hell he's paid it twice he knows what it is like I don't know I just I quite frankly I, I think it was just it, it was an ego thing honestly like there's no like, I don't know. I don't think there's any good reason to not take a free draft pick when the guy's going to leave anyways. Like, I don't know. The whole thing just feels like it's, it's up. Oh, here comes the measuring contest again. And, you know, which, which Canadian team will prevail? It turned out they were both enormous. <laughs> oh, it depends how you, it depends what you, what unit of measurement you were using. I was thinking it turns out they were both very small, to be perfectly honest. Cause I don't think I, either side won that, won that contest. Um, so somebody mentioned something about getting something for nothing, and I feel like this is a really good time to segue into uh, Brent Seabrook and just the sort of... And, and even, like, the Marc-Andre Fleury trade and just, like, some of that kind of stuff and how, how it... And we touched on this, I know, last time, Alex, you weren't with us, but we touched on it a little bit last time, but, like, how is it possible, is this a thing that no one knew, that you can just trade something for nothing? I mean, I love it, right? Like... I love the Islanders. Have, they, they give up draft choices, and the Andrew Ladd contract's gone. Like, I think that's good business because Arizona is a mess and clearly needs to rebuild. Like, <laughs> that's just how it is. They need to rebuild. Um, they're getting valuable assets and draft choices to take on short-term bad money so a contending team like the Islanders can re-sign Kyle Palmieri, which they've been sitting on for four days now. Um, but they can go in and bring in guys like Zach Parise and re-sign Kyle Palmieri, Casey Sezikis, and, and Travis Sajak. Like, that's good business. Philadelphia, you know, whether or not you think the moves are good has been one of the most entertaining teams to watch this offseason with the Ristolainen and Ellis trades, um, bringing Keith Yandel in, everything that they've done. They did the same thing. Here's a couple of draft picks. Take a bad contract off our hands. So Arizona all of a sudden has a ton of picks, some short-term money that – you know, I mean, at least in the case of Andrew Ladd and Anton Strawman, probably not going to get a ton out of. But, like, there's a chance Shane Gostaspear turns into something there. Like, I don't think he's a terrible player. I think he's a, a bad fit in Philadelphia right now. But I think there's a chance. Like, I love that. Like, Vegas needs cap space to potentially get in on Jack Eichel. Okay, we have Robin Leonard. Here's Marc-Andre Fleury. Chicago, a big market team that's trying to get back into the playoffs, gives up, gives up some... AHL prospect that probably doesn't have much of a chance. 
and gets a goaltender that won the Vezina last year. Like, I think the, more of these trades need to happen. I think this is how you spark interest in the league. Like, the NHL can be boring at times. Let's make it interesting. This has made it really interesting to me. I love it. Like, people are already – I love this. People are already flipping out about the Lightning getting Brent Seabrook's LTIR money. Like, people are stopping their feet again over it. I think it's great. Like, this is a smart team that knows that they have a chance to win a third Stanley Cup. Let's go for it. Hell yeah, it rules. Sorry, go ahead, Avery. <laughs> you know, Brent Seabrook, I was going to mention, though, I think it was uh, Rachel Dory, she mentioned this on Twitter. She was asking um, about this. How long until the NHL puts in a rule where saying if a player says they're not going to play again, then you can't trade for them. I think that's going to come eventually where they're going to close that loophole and say, yeah, a player is on LTIR or is actually not going to play again can't be dealt. I think it's going to happen one day where someone's going to trade for the contract of someone like Jamie McLennan and say, yeah, that, that we can't do that. I think it's going to be some outrageous guy in LTIR is going to get traded. That's going to close this loophole one day because really... When I saw Brent, when I saw Brent Seabrook last on TV, the man could barely stand. That's how mangled his knees are right now. So <laughs> I think the, I think there's gonna be a limit where in which these kind of deals are gonna be closed for good one day. I think maybe, but good. Sorry, I was just thinking about how dumb it is actually that once they can no longer play, they're st- and they're, like if they're still under contract, that they have to get paid, and that's fine because they signed a contract. But like if you can. Aff- officially like no longer perform your job then that should be like not the employer as in the team but like the employer is in the league's responsibility to pay that out and the money should just come off the team's cap it's not legit and whether it's like some bullshit whatever i don't care if you are ltir through the end of your contract then that shouldn't that shouldn't really be a thing like do you know what i mean because like yes i get it yeah. i understand the way the rules are written now but like it's not the team's fault. Like, if you sign someone to an eight-year deal, it's not the team's fault that at the end of year six or whatever, I have no idea, but let's just say the end of year six, it's not the team's fault that, you know, somebody no longer has any cartilage in their knees and can't skate anymore. Or even if the injury is totally made up. I don't care. Yeah, I don't As really... As a fan, yeah, I, I only agree. care about uh, really two things. Entertaining hockey, and I don't want uh, any anybody to get, like, absolutely screwed personally. So in this case, the player's still getting the money. They're not getting screwed. The hockey's being made, if anything, more entertaining. I don't want the loopholes closed. I want them open wider. More loopholes. That's the key. But, we only care about entertaining hockey. But in this case, I think, with the LTIR thing, like, I kind of feel like if that's the case and they legit can't play anymore, as much as, like, the way the rules are written now is the responsibility of the team and that cap hit stays with the team and whatever, that's fine. But it shouldn't. Well, that's the thing, right? Like, if you're gonna, t- if a guy knows he can't play again, then that there shouldn't be a cap penalty. Like, I'm sorry, Nashville shouldn't take a penalty for matching an, a ridiculous offer sheet from Philadelphia, and now all of a sudden Shea Weber can't play again, and now Nashville's the one that gets punished, even though they really yeah. were just in the middle of the whole thing. I think that's ridiculous. That, that's absolutely obscene. The cap recapture stuff is stupid. It was the league punishing people for following the rules. It's totally stupid. right, and, and like. Here's the thing. If Brent Seabrook can be placed on LTIR and Chicago can use that extra cap space, to me, that's an asset for the Blackhawks. They flipped an asset, which was LTIR cap space, for another asset in Tyler Johnson, who's going to be a serviceable third-line center for them. Like, that was asset in, asset out trade. Like, if you're not going to – 
Now, if the Neg, I agree with you. If the NHL comes in and says, "Okay, Brent Seabrook can't play again," we're gonna take that cap hit off the books. Like, don't worry about the six point eight million, whatever the heck it is. We're taking it off the books. You know, he'll still get paid, but it doesn't impact the salary cap whatsoever. That then that's a different story. But if you can all of a sudden go over the cap by six point eight million dollars to replace him, to me that becomes an asset, and assets are tradable. So. As much as people are going to be upset that here goes the lightning again, like here they go, I think that's a smart, astute move by Tampa Bay to keep their championship window open. You know, like they lost the Kucherov LTIR. They lost Marion Gabrick LTIR. Now they're replacing it with another big ticket. And then until they take that money off the salary cap, I have no problem with it. And In fact, I quite frankly wish the Oilers would have done this more. Like go get guys who aren't going to play again. Use the money. You know, go over the cap by $10 million. You, your window's not going to be open forever. The only, uh, or not the only, another tricky wrinkle, which I think is going to come up, and I'm stealing this point from uh, somebody else, but they're famous, so they, they, they don't care, is I'm wondering how long it's going to take before insurance companies start complaining about this. Because you say the money's still getting paid. The money's still getting paid, but if somebody's LTIR'd, it's probably not getting paid by the team. Correct. Probably getting paid by an insurance company. And how long are insurance companies going to be okay with, well, this guy's not even hurt. You got, He doesn't want to play or he's happy to ride off into the sunset. And you're happy to be able to LTIR him. So you're just uh, asking me to pay this relatively healthy guy's salary. Um, so I think that will be a sticky widget in the future as well. Let's I can't even though. pretend to know how insurance works. Uh, well, really well, my understanding is that, like, yeah, at some point in time, that if someone is like legitimately injured, I don't know, like I'm, but I'm thinking like workers' compensation, like the employer doesn't pay that out, right? And so if someone's like actually injured, they're com- and it's obviously if they're injured because of the conditions of their job, that becomes a different issue. But like, that's why if it's an LTIR sort of situation, that's why I think it should be just taken. Like I get the cap space is, is an asset, and you get the opportunity to like go over the cap and whatnot, but like. If you have that six point eight million dollars off the books, you don't have to go over the cap, right. and then like that's that's really the difference. And it, it so it closes like one of the loopholes, but it also just sort of it levels the playing field, right? Because it is absolutely insane that if Shea Weber retires, that Nashville gets punished for it, even though he retired in Montreal. Like that's a crazy thing. Like that should not be. Yeah. The well, the, the cap of capture rules are. Just incredibly terrible, but they apply to almost no one still left in the league, because that was uh, under the old CBA. The league got mad that people were acting perfectly within the rules, um, and decided to punish a few specific teams. Vancouver's getting absolutely screwed by it. Um, Nashville's about to get just royally screwed as well. Um, It could work out really well for Edmonton if Duncan Keith retires this summer. If Duncan Keith retires this summer, it'll almost be a good deal. We get three million dollars bonus camp if he retires. So let's hope the best thing that could possibly happen to the Oilers is uh, Keith has a fantastic year and decides he wants to go out in a high and retires. Then, way to go. Avery? Oh, you know, if, if Keith retires, I would be, you know, I, I, I think he plays both years, though, but I think that would be interesting to see if he does um, retire. Because, yeah, that would be a big win for this team. But I'm in the camp of saying that he plays both years uh, for the Oilers, but... I'm st- I'm st- I'm still I'm sitting here and I'm still in somewhat of a sh- of shock because just see how that deal went down when Edmonton was a team they were competing against themselves 
they were competing against themselves and somehow lost that deal. I'm still in shock with that game. <laughs> well, as we say sometimes here, time is a flat circle here in Edmonton uh, and around the Oilers because, uh, yeah, it's, all, it's the same thing all the time. Um, any other sort of... Any other deals we want to talk about, the big ones? I, we should touch on the Eichel non-trade, because I think that's important. Um, but any other, like, big signings or whatever that we want to discuss before we move into that? Um, uh, Kale McCarr is the best D in the league. What a great deal for the Avalanche. Yeah, putting Amherst, Massachusetts on the map. Middle of nowhere, UMass on the map now with Kale McCarr. Um, I really like what the LA Kings have done um, with between Victor Arvidsson, and I think they overpaid Phil Deneau, but... To bring him in with that young group and to also add Alex Edler, I think they made some sneaky good moves and they will be in the mix. In fact, I mean, I know a lot of people want to talk about the you know Grubauer and, and Drieger in Seattle and talk about the Kraken being a playoff team. I think it's going to be Los Angeles that jumps up and takes that third spot with the Edmonton and Vegas group um, at the at the top of the Pacific Division. Uh, I look at some of the other signings around the league. You know, Boston is going to be an interesting team for me. They went out, they signed Nick Foligno. Um, they brought in Eric Halla, Tomas Nosek, and finally looked like they found a winger for David Krejci long-term in Taylor Hall, and then Krejci leaves to the Czech Republic. Um, one signing that almost went down that didn't, I know there was a lot of talk in Edmonton about Ryan Getzlaff becoming an Oiler. From what I understand, if it wasn't Anaheim, it was going to be Boston for Getzlaff to replace Krejci and that the Bruins knew about Krejci about two weeks ago. Um, and they made the Hall signing. The efforts intensified once Krejci um, let it be known that he was going to return to the Czech Republic. So Getzlaff to Boston would have been interesting. They're going to be in the market for a center. Uh, just trying to think of some other signings. Oh, I find it hilarious that both Andre Kasha and Nick Ritchie left Boston to go to Toronto while Felino comes to Boston. Um, and other than that, yeah, I, I thought it was, you know, kind of a whatever free agency period. It wasn't anything crazy. Um, you know, I'll be interested to see what Calgary does moving forward, too, because I'm just spitballing here, but they really didn't do anything. So I'll be interested to see what the rest of the summer looks like for a team like them. Yeah, I don't know what uh, Calgary is doing with their defense. They're just kind of losing their top pairing over the last two years and not replacing with that. anyone. I think that uh, Boston's made some really great moves, and I think that between Coyle and Halla, they might be able to cobble together a decent second line um, C. But the team that I really want to just quickly talk about, and you mentioned them already, but we didn't linger on it, was Arizona. Uh, Bill Armstrong is in my opinion, making an argument for being a top five GM. You talked earlier about how often teams don't understand their windows. They just think, well, I mean, we like to say it on Oilers Twitter all the time, get good players, keep good players. That's a good rule of thumb, but when you're actually building a team, you kind of need them to be cresting at the same time if you actually want to do anything, or else you'll just be stuck on that kind of treadmill of mediocrity. Uh, and Arizona is a team that understood they weren't going to be good next year no matter what. So what's the point of paying Connor Garland, even though he's a good player, if he's going to be the difference of between you finishing ninth and finishing 12th? Like, that doesn't matter anyway. Move him for a first round. Well, who cares if you're taking on a bunch of bad, overpaid players in a year that you're going to be bad anyway? They know they're going to be bad anyway. So they're just loading on all these players, who most of which are NHL players, so they'll at least be decent. They won't embarrass their fans. And then they'll be able to, they're getting paid to take these guys, and then they're going to get paid again when they dump them at the trade deadline. Like, they're for sure going to be able to move 
I shouldn't say for sure. Very good chance they'll be able to move Gostas Bear if they want to. Pretty decent chance they'll be able to move Erickson if uh, they want to. As he's at least a good depth player. He's not what he was, but he's still um, okay. They're just loading up on guys who they're going to get paid twice. They're going to get paid to take them, and they're going to get paid to move them. And they were going to be bad anyway. And now that, that window, uh, ideally anyway, if they, if they draft well, they'll have a bunch of guys who are hitting the market at the same time. Which is why I think Buffalo is wise to trade. Eichel is even if Eichel comes back and is a 90-point player, that's not going to be enough to make Buffalo good. You might as well move them for a bunch of picks and hopefully have them all crest at the same time. And and further to your point, I just want to touch on this. Um, Erickson, you mentioned pending you uh, one more year than UFA. Anton Roussel, one more year than UFA. Jay Beagle, one more year then he's a UFA. They just signed Ryan Dezingle, one-year deal. These are guys that they can eat some cap on. You're going to tell me there's not a team that wouldn't take Jay Beagle at half his contract at the deadline? You know They may be able to recuperate some third, fourth, fifth-round picks from teams looking to make a splash heading into the playoffs. Like I don't know. A lot of people gave them some crap for taking on bad contracts, but they all have one year left, and they can get assets from them. I'm with you on that. I think Arizona's actually got a plan for the first time in a long time. Now we'll see if they can draft, develop, and actually execute it. But, I mean, look, they've got seven picks in the first two rounds next year. Like, they're they're stocking up at the right time, you know, and those young guys will be ready when Austin Matthews is a free agent. Just interesting <laughs> side note. I, I found it interesting that they were trading for – they were getting all these second-round draft picks back. Um, and I was just thinking that maybe it would be fun if next year all of a sudden they had, like, 15 second-round draft picks in just, like, the one draft – um, just for fun, you know, just like, just like Pokemon, right? Like they just got to catch them all. I think that'd be fun because there comes a point where like you can have two, like, I mean, we have all well, noticed if you look at certain teams, like they don't have, you know, they're like missing like a two or three and a four in a particular year or whatever. But if you had like six second round draft picks in a draft year, which is like entirely possible with what the Coyotes are doing, you can bundle that up, you know, like bundle that into like two packages of three or whatever. Um, and get something pretty decent as a return for that. Because we know that GMs like to trade for first and second round draft picks. Like, we know that that's a thing. They even like depth, like what I would, I kind of hope they do. I think they'll probably go the way that you just uh, suggested. But they could just drop all their bottom picks. Like, trade sixth, fifth, and fourth for someone and keep those second rounders. But uh, in any case, yeah, I expect that, uh, well, they're in a great place next year. To do the thing at the draft, which is all of a sudden at the draft, draft depth picks become super overrated, and uh, that's a great time to have more picks than maybe you need, as you can suddenly load up on NHL players, which they won't have at that point. So, it's going to work out well for Arizona. And yet, so so Arizona's doing some smart things. Bill Armstrong's a good general manager. Um, it seems that there's like a, been a shift in how certain GMs view like the this offseason sort of you know the post draft early free agency period it seems that there's been a shift in how that's viewed so you have some, a guy like Bill Armstrong trading for all of the second round draft picks and whatever and then you have other guys who seem to just keep losing the deals that they're making and I want to before we get into some more like Oilers specific stuff like other than what we've seen from Ken Holland I think we can generally agree and like, yeah we get accused of agreeing too much on here I think we can generally agree this has not been a great offseason for Ken Holland. Um, just sort of in general. I think there's some things that he's done that have, are very questionable. I think there's some things he's done that are slightly less questionable. But on the whole, trending towards the negative. Are there other GMs that you're seeing that are kind of getting caught in this, like, you know, 
old hockey man trap, or are we? I don't know what Caroline shift? is doing. I'm going to just jump in and say they're no very one does. confusing to me. Yeah, I I honestly have no answer for for what Carolina is doing right now. Um, they're going to be good again, I, I at least I think. Um, looking at their roster, but like the defense. They've got, I think, nine NHL defensemen under contract, if I'm looking at this correctly. I mean, Slavin, Shea, Gardner, Pesci, they come back. They trade for Ethan Bayer. Then they go out and they sign Ian Cole. They sign Brendan Smith, and he's a lesser name, but they sign Jalen Chatfield, who's also on a one-way contract. So that gives them eight defensemen on NHL contracts. Like, I don't know. I feel like something's got to give there, and that doesn't even include um, – and Tony D'Angelo with that whole thing. So that's now nine defensemen signed to NHL contracts. Like, it feels like there's a lot going on there. And, you know, I probably wouldn't have signed Dougie Hamilton to the contract he got as good of a player as he is. But, like, I don't know what Carolina's up to. Like, they trade Nadelkovich and then go out and they give $4.5 million to Freddie Anderson. Like, yeah. what exactly is going on there? Like, I don't know. There's a lot of things that don't make a ton of sense with what they're doing. It feels like they're taking a step forward and then taking two back right now. I, you know, I'm going to say with Carolina, um, seeing the move that they made, you've got to mention Tony D'Angelo, as a team that signed the Blacker Hockey Club pledge to get uncomfortable, what a slap in the face to your fan base. What a slap in the face to anyone who stood by, who thought you were a team that's progressive by signing Tony D'Angelo. Like, how in the world are the Hurricanes going to try and really? I know, I know they got pressed by local media, but there's no amount of rationalizations or excuses you can make to sign D'Angelo when you're a team once part of the Black Hill Hockey Club. That's so insulting to any marginalized fan of the Hurricanes. And like, let's be honest here, Tony D'Angelo is not a top tier talent, right? Like, this is the thing I think about. I mean, his questionable whatever. Like, I don't even want to. He's a shitbag, and I don't want to talk about him as a person. But like, I can understand the desire to sign a guy like him if he's like a top tier talent right sure whatever he's not and so like he's the pretty good he's good but he's not like but he's not gonna he's not i don't think he's going to move the needle in carolina the way that uh he might on like a different team and i'm really glad that you know the oilers didn't maybe take a flyer on that but i like he's it's not like he's one of the like the big fish sort of in that pond and so like the rush to sign a player like that I don't know. There's there's something about that that just feels very uncomfortable. But it does sort so, of speak to it does sort of speak to like all of a sudden whatever these teams say and whatever it is they want to talk about with like the off ice issues and like the the things that the the causes they support and whatever. It it's just it's a good reminder that most of that is just lip service, right? And so Right. I mean, at the end of the day they lose Dougie Hamilton. And they spend $1 million on a 25-year-old right-shot defenseman who can play on the power play and put up points. And he has a history of putting up points. Like, that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying I agree with that. Like, that's, that's not what I'm saying here. But, I mean, Don Waddell looks at it and says, I'm going to replace Dougie Hamilton on the power play with Tony D'Angelo, who not a good, not a good defensive player, but he is a good puck mover. He's going to come in. He's going to do this at a bargain price for me. Everything else be damned. Now, that's not what I would have done, and I'm not going to blame the Oilers for something that they didn't do, but, like, if Tyson Berry had walked, a Tony D'Angelo signing wouldn't have stunned me. Um, So I'm glad somebody else did it because, really, just 
I, I'm, I just don't want to deal with that. Um, but like that, he was going to get signed for that reason, which is ridiculous because it's not like this is his first or his even his second uh, issue. Like this goes back to before he was drafted out of junior. Like the whole thing is just ridiculous. The guy has shown you time and again who he is. And listen, I'm all for second chances, but when you're on your fifth friggin' chance, like enough already. Like it just he, there's there's no place for that. He's thinned in a way that teams usually do care about in that he's alienated teammates. It's not like it's off ice stuff that has nothing to do with the team. His teammate punched him in the face last year and his team told him not to come yep. back. Uh, but that said, I do think he's an excellent bet if you look at it purely in uh, hockey terms to bring more value than his contract. Like, I get in a strictly hockey sense why they did it. I don't know that he'll bring enough value to be worth um, everything else. Especially what, I don't know, I wasn't especially impressed with his uh, press conference answers. I don't, I didn't get the impression that he totally understands the problems that he's created in the past, but I'm not, I, I don't know. Well, and I think, too, the thing about that is, like, it's a good, like, the whole hockey culture piece, it's a good reminder when we look at something like this. Like, yeah, if you're looking at just purely from an on-ice perspective, sure, right? That's not a bad signing. And it, it, it fills a need that they have in the immediate future because they lost Dougie Hamilton. And I get that, like, because you need to sort of replace, you need to replace the players that you lose. But a person like that who were in this sport where like team culture is so important. I cannot fathom a world in which he adds anything to that. No, That's it's... really to me, the thing it's like, it's to me, it feels like a signing that like is going to backfire at the end of the day, because like you say, he was essentially asked not to come back and like he punched a teammate in the face. No, no, a teammate punched him. Or a teammate punched him, right, because he's a dick. But you know what I mean? like, And, and so if, there's, if, if that's the kind of person that you're bringing into your locker room, I understand from like the hockey-playing perspective why you would, but I also am sort of just like, well, maybe okay. that's well, what not What happens the every guy. time... Sorry to interrupt you. Every time someone overpays a Jay Beagle and says we need to... Or an Andrew Ferentz says we need to change the culture in our dressing room, uh, the the smart fans like us always say worry more about the on ice thing. Like it's not that culture and character and leadership don't matter, but what you're doing on the ice just matters the most. And from a strictly on ice perspective, I think he like what did he sign for a million dollars? He's a very good bet to be to bring more than a million dollars worth of value. So in that sense, um, I get it. Um, it's more, I think it really depends on, I'll, like, I'll be totally honest, I don't closely follow um, the the various things that have led to people getting mad about him. I know what he said in junior, and, like, I have a broad familiarity with him, but it's possible that management were like, you know what, we think that you are being overly maligned, or we think that we've seen genuine repentance, or for whatever reason, it doesn't morally bother them. And if it doesn't morally bother them, for better or for ill, that's, that's kind of, it is what it is. But in strictly hockey terms, um, really, at, at the amount he's getting paid, if he shows up and two weeks in, the team's like, oh, yeah, we hate this guy and we can't stand him. No big deal. We'll just send him down or cut him entirely. For like You can bury all of his salary right now. From a hockey point of view, I think it's kind of a slam dunk. Even if he is a terrible uh, leech and a cancer on your dressing room, you can just cut him. But uh, if you want to give... 
Tony D'Angelo a job or don't want to because you don't think that it's morally correct to give him a job. I think that's different than uh, is it a good hockey idea. And also, again, I go back to the point. They have nine NHL defensemen on one-way deals. That That's a great point. Yeah, that tells me the leash is probably not long there. Granted, I don't think there should be a leash period, but, um, yeah, that tells me it's not going to be a long leash for him. But, I mean, uh, from a hockey standpoint – pure hockey standpoint the signing makes sense it's just you know from a culture standpoint which uh, you know as you mentioned is supposed to be so big to these guys um and really just from a decency standpoint like i I just don't know how he could have uh been offered another contract like at a certain point you run out of out of chances and he is very well on borrowed time right now well, and so, okay, let's take this then, and now let's talk about Ethan Bear. Like, I think that there, there's, like, a, a good natural segue. So, as we know, Ethan Bear has been traded to um, uh, to Carolina, and then the Hurricanes sign Tony D'Angelo. And, like, off-ice issues being the thing that we're thinking about, now all of a sudden, and we'll talk about Bear's comments and, and whatnot uh, here in a minute, but now all of a sudden you have a guy who experienced some... Uh, difficult stuff here from fans. I don't know what happened in the locker room, and, and that's nothing. But like from fans and and media and whatnot, um, and some of it having to do with him being indigenous and those sorts of things. And now all of a sudden he's in a locker room with Tony D'Angelo, and I just there's something about that that like that part of it sucks. Um, but let's talk about that Ethan Bear trade because originally the reaction on uh, Twitter now that Ethan Bear has come out and talked about uh, being traded. Um, things maybe are a little bit different. The original reaction on Twitter when they made that trade uh, was like shock and outrage. And there's a lot of people very, very upset. Uh, Avery, what are your thoughts? What were your original thoughts? Actually, what were you, what were you thinking about that when you heard it? Uh, the trade for Ethan bear. My first thought was, well, they shall be trading for a good young defenseman. But when it sunk in that Ethan bear being the same room as Tony D'Angelo, it turned to anger because knowing what Ethan has gone through, what happened postseason after he was abused online, I just thought to myself, great. The last thing Ethan needs now is to be in the locker room with someone who is known as an awful teammate and also has been racist uh, 400,000 times. Anyone else have a thought on it? That was some awkward dead airspace. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. <laughs> I think I've heard a lot of people say that. I don't want to make it sound like I'm uh, specifically disagreeing just and exclusively with Avery. That seems to be a common line of thought. I do think that element of it is slightly overblown um, in that (laughs) this isn't exactly a defense of Tony D'Angelo. He's more, like, his problems have come from being an all-around dick. Like, he, one of his suspensions was for abusing a teammate, another was for abusing rep. To be, again, like, quote-unquote fair to him, most of his run-ins have been with white people. He just seems like a really hard guy to get along with. Um... And he's been on teams with, uh, you know, teammates of color before where that didn't seem to be one of the big issues. He just seems to be an all-around difficult, unpleasant person. I don't think, uh, I don't see that being a major issue. And if, like, like, even at this point, most racists are able to keep it together to the point that they can be in the same room uh, with someone else. And he's not going to have any sway in that locker room. He's the new guy. He's coming in on the short leash. He's already texted Ethan to say, just so you know, we're going to be cool. Please don't believe what you've heard of me, etc., etc. I'm not saying any of this makes Tony D'Angelo a good person. I just don't expect that it's going to 
like, oh, this is a big issue in the room that we're going to have to navigate. I think that's entirely, if it's anyone's problem, it's Tony D'Angelo's problem. Um, and I do kind of wonder, like, I don't know, this might be spilling the boundaries of uh, what this podcast is supposed to be about, but I think that indigenous relations is a much bigger issue in Canada than it is in the States. And not because it's not, there aren't problems in the States, it's just there's so many other competing issues. So I wonder if Bear will actually have a comparatively quieter time dealing with any uh, racial stuff by leaving Canada, leaving the prairies specifically. Um, I think that might be part of the reason why he seems so excited to be leaving uh, the prairies is where he can kind of go and dodge that uh, that thing entirely. So I, I'd be shocked if Tony D'Angelo is any kind of a problem for him in the dressing room. My, my initial reaction in the trade was I was surprised that so many people were surprised. I mean, you know, if you're paying attention, we all know it's probably not a smart move. In fact, I think the Oilers are going to regret uh, trading Ethan Bear. But, I mean, this has been telegraphed by Rashad, Gregor, Stoffer. The media has you know, telegraphed this kind of move for weeks now. And when that kind of move gets telegraphed, like, there's not a lot of secrecy in Edmonton. Like, it's like a high school. The gossip goes around pretty quickly. And once you hear a rumor, there's a pretty good chance that it's going to happen. And that's not a knock on anybody. Like, that are like people are doing their jobs, and, like, it makes it, Interest, painful, but interesting to be a fan of the team. Um, so I wasn't overly shocked. And remember, if anybody was watching TSN on Wednesday, Bob McKenzie literally told you what the trade was going to be a half an hour before it happened. So when the deal actually came down, like the second I saw Bob McKenzie tweet on Tuesday night that the Oilers and Ethan uh, Tyson Barry were working on a contract extension. Okay, where's Ethan Bear going next? Because he was they're not they weren't gonna bring both Bear and Barry back. That just wasn't what was gonna happen. So I wasn't shocked that the trade went down. I was pleasantly surprised at the return, believe it or not. I still feel like the Oilers overpaid and they lost the trade in assets. I was getting ready for a third round pick and a Western Canadian junior player who probably had no chance of being anything other than a fourth liner. Warren Fogle is an actually good NHL third liner. He's going to be a fan favorite. He's going to help this team. He's good. I just wouldn't have paid Ethan Bear to get him. Um, after the initial shock, I disagree completely on the, the Tony D'Angelo thing. Even if he reaches out and says we're cool, like, you know who a guy is and how a guy is. Like, even if Tony's on his best behavior, that's got to be awkward for anybody that's in Ethan Bear's uh, situation going in there. Like, he dealt with all the, the crap, which was disgusting from a portion of the Oilers fan base that should be ashamed of themselves uh, after the first round of the playoffs. Um, and now you're going to put him into a locker room with a guy that's got that reputation. And I don't, like... I think it's true. I think the reputation of Tony D'Angelo is completely true, and I don't give him any benefit for the doubt. And I don't know. Like, if I'm in Ethan Bear's shoes, and I never will be, and I'll never understand that, um, but I would feel pretty uncomfortable going into a, to a room with Tony D'Angelo, even if he's reached out. Like, I don't know. The guy doesn't change like that, man. It's just I, I don't trust him, quite frankly. I think, that, I think it's going to be an issue just from a, a feeling comfortable standpoint. Like, how can you feel comfortable – when you know one of the guys in the room, like, clearly has that history. Like, that's got to be awkward and very uncomfortable. It's not so much that I disagree with any of that. It's just that D'Angelo's history goes way beyond that. He's not someone who is just has, like, said a slur in junior. 
he's fought with uh, teammates on multiple occasions for a wide variety of reasons. I don't think that Ethan Bear is the only one who's going to be giving him the side eye and wondering, like, who is this guy? How is he going to cause problems for us? I think if anyone's on the outside there, it's more D'Angelo than Bear. It's not like they're bringing in a beloved guy whose only flaw is, oh, yeah, he's a racist. It's they're bringing in a widely disliked guy who one of his many flaws is he uh, uh, used a racial slur uh, in, in junior. But he's followed that up with a series of incidents uh, that were not racially motivated at all, which is why I think he's kind of an all-purpose dick, which actually in some ways would make you... Well, I, I Again, I'm purely projecting much like you. I can't say that I know. But I think that uh, the locker room should be united in like suspicion of this dude. Um I had a follow-up point. Somebody else talk while I remember what I was Well, saying. and maybe there might be enough in there in that, like, with, you know, wh- whoever else is in that, that Carolina locker room to be like, listen, Tony, you need to sit down and shut up. Like, this is not... Yeah, but I'm sure yeah. people have said that to him. No, before. I know, but there but there might be enough. And, and, and part of that might be, like, a Brenda Moore thing as well, right? Like, I wouldn't want to mess with him. I don't know. He terrifies me, so... He'll yeah, beat you so I feel like maybe things will be fine. Um, but interestingly, so back to the like Ethan Bear and the trade and stuff. He was. This is going to be controversial, I know, for some people out there in Oilerland, and I apologize. He was a fan favorite for reasons that I don't understand. Um, it might be a bugger with you guys. I have no idea. I I felt like I I don't have any issues with how he played. I think obviously he wasn't Tippett's guy. We learned that, and I think that. Him having a fresh start elsewhere is not a bad thing uh, for him. I think the I think the franchise did him dirty. I think the coach did him dirty, and I think that there's some things there that like, you know, we'll, we're never gonna know what some of those things are. But I kind of feel, I don't feel I w- I wouldn't say I was like low on him as people were. Maybe some people were uh, on Caleb Jones because I think there's some people who really like Caleb Jones for reasons that I also don't understand. But I kind of think that Bear like, don't know if he lived up to the hype. Well, I think the first year he certainly did. And then early this season, getting the concussion definitely impacted him. Uh, And I thought he was pretty good towards the end of the regular season. He struggled a bit in the Winnipeg series, no doubt about that. But, I mean, I think the Ethan Bear fandom, A, comes from who he is as a person. B, comes from the fact that a mid-to-late-round draft pick actually made the NHL for this Oilers organization. Like, that has been a big deal. We've lamented the losses of guys like Jeff Petrie and going all the way back to defensemen like Tom Pody. Like, these guys have always left town to go on and have the best years of their career. And here's a homegrown top four right-shot defenseman that can fill a hole for the Oilers. And they, once again, after a perceived bad season, traded him away like, it's it's aggravating, but also this comes down to a an issue which I'm at the point now or whatever. I, I just I don't care what most Oilers fans think anymore. Um, the toxic positivity group that always has to have you know anything Ken Holland says or anything certain writers in town say, anything any certain sages have to say, um, you know everything is is holy gospel. Um, you know it, it became a, oh Ethan Bear has good stats. Well then the player has to suck. Like, the whole thing was just absolutely ridiculous, mm-hmm. and that part of the fan base, um, to me, is out of their minds, respectfully. But, um, you know, I think that played a part in it. I think it was an us-versus-them thing. Ethan Bear had good stats, so you saw people who value those things 
really look at Ethan Bear and say, okay, this is a good player. And then because of that, you saw other people say, oh, the eye test. Nope, nope, this guy sucks. Get rid of him. He's overrated. Like, I just, I don't know. The fan base is ridiculous. That's what I'm getting at. I, I've, and you know what? If this team got me fired up for a long time. They, they really did. Um, but I'm at the point now where, like, going on Twitter and reading about this team is no longer enjoyable. Because it is always an argument about every single player. It's always an argument about every little piece of evaluation. Like, I don't love everything Ken Holland's done. I think he's done an excellent job with the forward group. I think the defense is a mess. But, like, you can't have an opinion without being attacked. And that's why I think Ethan Bear is a fan favorite with a lot of the people that we interact with. Because he did a lot of things well. He wasn't a shutdown physical defenseman. But he was a good defenseman who could also transport and move the puck. Like... The advanced stats were good, so a certain portion of the fan base had to tear them down, and it became a measuring contest. And, you know, with the people that this group usually interacts with, he was a fan favorite. And, Meg, to a degree, I do agree with you. He didn't necessarily live up. To, like, I think some people view him as one of the best young defensemen in the game today, and he's not that, but he's a very good young defenseman. And I just, yeah, there was some overhype there, but there's a certain portion that just really aggravates me. Okay, I'll, I'll t step up and take a swing on the Ethan Bear fandom as I, uh, it, this is a rare case when I find myself in the extremes, not in the safe center. I am an Ethan Bear super fan, and there's a couple of reasons. One, as you mentioned, his advanced stats are fantastic. There's just no getting around that. If you value those uh, advanced stats, he looks very, very good by them. But to be honest, the main reason why I like him is the eye test. I love the way he aggressively makes puck plays. He creatively makes puck plays. He's not going off the glass and out. He's trying to make a pass every time. He's a guy who's always trying to make plays. Both in the defensive zone, he's trying to make good plays, moving it out that allow his team to be more aggressive on the exit. And in the offensive zone, he's he's walking the line. He's looking for sharp passes. Um, I, I like his uh, vision, and more it's his attitude of that, like, offensive aggression and at the same time he combines that with i wouldn't call him a shutdown defenseman but um tippett trusts him on the penalty kill the even when tippett was trying hard to bench him and had benched caleb jones earlier in the season because he wasn't good on the penalty kill he could not send ethan bear out there because ethan bear could penalty kill um i think it's worth remembering that he was the whl defenseman of the year the year after his his draft uh year he took a big step forward and if you look at the whl uh, defenseman of the year most of them go on to be very uh solid nhl defensemen such as the great chris russell who won the uh, won the <laughs> honor twice but um yeah i liked his style i thought he had just enough uh punch and back like he was the first guy to fight matt kachuk before cassian did it he uh, had the right amount of snarl. I really liked his passing. I liked his, um, like I said, his mobility out there. I sensed some creativity. Uh, I just liked the way he worked. And if I'm being totally honest, I will admit, uh, I think I am a little, was a little bit biased towards him. I thought it was great to see a young indigenous player from the prairie succeeding on a prairie team. I thought that was fantastic. I thought the Cree nameplate thing was no exaggeration. Maybe the coolest marketing thing the NHL has done this century. It, um, and not just because it was politically progressive or whatever. It was cool. It looked cool. It was cool to see another language out there. Um, another small thing. 74 was the number I'd give myself an NHL creative player. So I just, maybe I was just primed to like Ethan Bear. Uh, but I did like Ethan Bear. And I do think that he, I think... You were bang on with Caleb Jones. There's a guy that I think uh, was inflated for reasons that could not be objectively defended. I don't think 
he had a lot going for him, but I don't think he was that good. I think some people just got so wrapped up in fighting with Tippett, they made him better than he was. I think Ethan Bear largely lives up to the Ethan Bear hype. Um, I will just quickly comment on the fans thing, because I think it's really relevant. Uh, that's how I've mostly felt since 2016. In many ways, I feel the Hall-Larson trade wrecked Oilers fandom. And not just because we lost Hall, because that just turned everything into a fight. Every time the Oilers won after the Hall-Larson trade, the Larson fans were like, Aha, see, Hall was bad. See, we're winning. Like, I couldn't enjoy it because it was getting thrown in my face. And then it seemed like the people who, like me, disagreed with the trade started doing the same thing after that. Like, I see on Twitter all the time people saying, Look, I wanted to be wrong. Bullcrap, you wanted to be wrong. I don't buy that for a second. That's, like, contrary to human nature. You wanted to be right. I think that a large part of you was enjoying the struggles of the team. I think that uh, other, like, it's not just the anti-analytics guys who overreact and carry their narratives. Chris Russell is a fine NHL third-pairing defenseman. I think the evidence is fairly uniform on that. Uh, some people like to cherry-pick stats to show that, oh, he's actually a sub-NHLer. No, he's not. He's not a great NHLer. He's definitely overpaid. But... As Jonathan Willis, respected uh, paragon of virtue in the Oiler fandom, has written many times, he is a fine third-pairing guy, but some people just love it when he makes mistakes. Yes, I think you're happy when he does. The It was great having Bear and Larson both leave back-to-back, -back and both of them say, yeah, to be honest, the fans were a factor, and they, they were getting hate from opposite corners of Oiler fandom. So no matter which corner you're hanging out in, some player has said, yes, your toxicity is a factor in what it's like to play here. So there are no innocent corners here, and I, I would say it's, it's a much bigger factor in what it's like to be a fan, because I completely agree with you, it's less fun than it used to be. I don't want to have a fight every time I start talking about the Oilers. I, let me just add to that real quick, that, you know, that, that group of, you know, ex-players not here anymore, you know, who cares about them, we want, you know, you better root for so-and-so now, and... You know, it's if you don't like everything the Oilers do, you're not a real fan. I just want to point out that that is the group that I've seen the most crap on Ethan Bear for since Wednesday. All of a sudden, he's the most overrated player the team has ever had, and he was never even that good. I'm just saying, look in the mirror. There's dirt on everybody because I think you're right. I think both corners, it has gotten to a point now where it's no longer about, hey, does this move make the team better? Or, hey... You know, did they overpay here? Or what do you th No. Now it's it has to fit my narrative or, you know, it sucks, right? Like it's either all analytics or it's not analytics. And I think there's only a certain few people that are able to dive in and do the work. Like Willis, you mentioned him. He had a great piece on Zach Hyman at The Athletic that I thought used the stats. It was very balanced. Wood Guy had a great piece on Duncan Keith recently, which was the same exact thing. Those guys do an excellent job of looking at every viewpoint and taking the bias out of it. But there's too many people. It's become too volatile. I'm with you. I, I just, I don't know. I don't enjoy it the way that I, I used to. And I've been trying to go less and less on it because I want to be excited because I think this is going to be a playoff team. They're going to be a good team this year. I want to be excited about it. Like, I like Cody Cece more than most people do. But, like, it. I, I hate going on Twitter and being like, oh, this guy sucks with a terrible addition. It's like, where's the fun in that? Even if like, I, you have to be objective and, you know, you have to take the rose-colored glasses off, but where's the fun in thinking that every single move is terrible, which I don't think is the case, by the way. Like, honestly, I think Holland's done some good things, but I don't know. I think you're right. I just think it's become too volatile and it's aggravating and too many people think they're the smartest people in the room and there is piss everywhere from this pissing contest.
<laughs> uh, you know what? I'll say as much. To Cannellon's credit, I thought the move to bring in Derek Ryan was a very great move for the third line. I think Derek Ryan's going to have a tremendous impact on this roster. But everybody here is right. Oilers Twitter is, it's like walking into the middle of World War II. There's grenades going off. There's bombs overhead. You got to look into a foxhole. Like I'm, I'm trying to sit on. I'm, I'm trying to sit in the watchtower and you know, get a shield up over my head for safety. Like all this Twitter, we haven't had real a level of peace since what I think 2014-ish, 2015-ish. During in the darkness era was even more was more civil than what's gone in the past six seven oh, years. Oh, the darkness <laughs> era was uniting because everyone agreed the team was bad. That was the nice thing about the team being terrible is there was no way you could argue the team wasn't terrible. But now ever ever since really 2016 is is the team terrible or are they right about to break through? And uh, what should we do about it? And what got us to here? And then there was so many more things to fight in. And I don't understand why this fight has to be this passionate like you i totally agree Derek ryan that was a really good move uh fogel good player i didn't like the acquisition cost i don't understand why these are moral issues like 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 if you supported the uh the bear for fogel trade i don't understand why that is morally on the level with and you probably also like the nazis and are soft on stalin like no that's just <laughs> even if you're totally wrong i don't care if you have bad hockey judgment that's not a big deal well, it's become, like, it feels like the discussions about personnel decisions and whatnot are, like, political, right? Like, that's where, yeah, yeah. that's where it is now. Like, it sounds like, it sounds like people are talking about politics and they're talking about personnel decisions and whatnot. I agree. And, like, now knowing what we know and, like, reading what, you, what Bear had to say about the trade, right? And he said, uh... Like, I'm just looking at the the article that was in The Sun. He says, like, everything I had to go through last year would have been pretty tough to push through it and battle all the adversity I would have had to deal with in Edmonton. Like, so stuff was bad, right? Like, for him. And as people who are on the outside of that, like, you know, as much as we know that certain things happened and, you know, they were, um, that people were, like, lobbing racial slurs his way and whatnot after the playoffs. But, like, it's not up to us to say that the just the, like the deal's good or bad or like the you know whatever it doesn't really matter cuz a it's not our money b it's not our team right i don't own the team that's part of what being a fan is and yes you should be able to criticize the moves that your management makes and all of those sorts of things but like at the end of it all there seems to be this weird division amongst oiler fans where if you like Ethan Bear let's say cuz that's kind of what we're talking about then you're wrong about all these other things. Like, there's there's connections between being a fan of Ethan Bear and, like, other stuff. Uh, and th that's where the divide just, like, seems to keep getting wider and wider. And it's been interesting to watch it kind of as, a, like, almost an outside observer um, because I don't really have a vested interest. And so I just think that's, like, a, been a fascinating shift over the last, like, four-ish seasons yeah. to get to that point. I mean, I, I think the point about the Hall trade being the... the um what was oh my god what was the guy's the name touch point no from um from world war one why can't it, oh the archduke assassination oh, Franz that, Ferdinand. yeah that's <laughs> that's what the hall trade was for for oilers twitter because like that has been the dividing point uh it really has like you know since that day it has always been a contest between the two sides and it's it's exhausting like I think you can have an opinion on the Ethan Bear Warren Fogel trade and be on both sides of it and be right. I don't like trading Ethan Bear, but I like 
Warren Fogle a lot as a player. And the more I dive into him, the more I think he fills an area of need for the team. Their bottom six was pitiful last year. I think they got 35.6 or 0.7% of the goals. Like, they were terrible last year in the bottom six. They've now added uh, two proven performers in the bottom six in Fogle and, and Ryan, who were going to help the team. Archibald's a fine bottom six player. Um, you know, I thought Ryan McLeod looked good in his 10 games. So that's four pieces that are pretty good. I, I wouldn't be shocked if Yamamoto started on the third line to start the year. And I wouldn't be shocked if there was another forward coming into play on the fourth line and, and push Devin Shore uh, into the press box. Like, I'm going to give Holland credit. I think the bottom six looks remarkably uh, improved year over year. And I think their forward group is going to be one of the best in the entire league this year. But I also look at the defense, and I think it's so. I think it's fair to praise him for the forwards, and I think it's fair to question the decisions on defense. Like I, I people hate Tyson Berry. Like I don't love the signing, but like three years at four and a half million is not a bad contract. Like Tyson Berry is not a terrible NHL player, like some people would have you believe. Like he's a top four right shot defenseman. Now I wouldn't have re-signed him because you have Ethan ba uh, Evan Bouchard. You don't have Ethan Berry, but. Um, like, I think he and Darnell Nurse proved last year they can play together. I think Bouchard, people are underrating. Like, I think he is a legitimately good player who's going to be able to fill a top-four role. Cody Ceci was actually good in Pittsburgh this year as a third-pairing right-handed defenseman. Like, he's a good NHL defenseman. I think, like, you know, there, there are questions there, but I think the defense is made out to be worse than it is, right? Like, we talked about this. Russell's a good third-pairing defenseman. Like, yeah, there's questions around Keith and can CC be his partner? And, you know, is Lagerson an NHL defenseman? Like, there's questions there. But I don't know. I, I feel like I've seen a lot from Oilers Twitter. I know I'm kind of rambling here, but I'm just trying to get all my thoughts together. Um, I think you've seen a lot of people bash Holland maybe a little bit unfairly. I think you can question the defense, but I think you have to look at the offense and say, okay, give credit where credit's due here. And we haven't seen that kind of balanced look. It's kind of an all-or-nothing thing right now. I, uh, I, well, I largely agree. I think you're a little more bullish on Holland's uh, summer than I am, but I do agree that the forwards look better, and anyone who says the team is significantly worse, I think, on balance, they're about the same. It's more it was a wasted opportunity. I think the team is about as good as it was, if not slightly better. Um, but here, I have a question for you. Based on something that you said, that uh, once we got... Barry, we knew Bear was going to move. Yes. And I think we did know that, but I don't understand why. The guy that Barry makes redundant is Bouchard, not Bear. I, I mean... Why... How are we having two power play specialists with... At this point, uh, Bouchard has a higher defensive ceiling, but his reputation is mostly as an offensive guy. So if we say they are, broadly speaking, two power play specialists uh, with uh, unproven defensive track records... And um, they kind of both want. They're basically they're competing for the exact same job. Yeah. Bear was going for a different job. He was the transition D that Holland said he wanted when he signed DC. It's Bouchard who I'm confused. How are you going to fit him and Barry on the same core? I mean, I I agree with that in the sense where if I'm the GM, the right side of my defense is Bear, Bouchard, and CC in some way, shape, or form. Like for the record, I think Cody CC gets a lot of crap for his time in Ottawa, but having watched a lot of the Penguins this year out in the East Coast, like. He was actually good for them. Um, he anchored their third pairing. Like, I think he's a better defenseman than a lot of people give credit for, and I think he's going to be fine here. Like, he, he's not going to replace Adam Larson, and Ethan Bear is better than him. But I don't think Cody Cece is some, like, you know, beer league defenseman that they're going to toss in on the blue line. Um, 
I mean, the only reason I say that about Bear is because we've heard from Daniel Nugent Bowman, who's done an excellent job this offseason covering this team over at The Athletic, that it's a priority for Evan Bouchard to play. And Ken Holland has said that himself. It's a priority. So piecing everything together, um, it was either Bear or it was Barry, right? Like, that's what they were going to do if they felt the need to add another defenseman. Now, I don't agree with it. I would have just kept Bear, and I would have signed Tatar. And I think you're better off with Tatar and Bear as opposed to Fogel and Barry. But I don't think either scenario is like a big loss. I just they I don't necessarily think they believe that Bouchard's going to be a power play quarterback this year. I think that they believe he may be a well a more rounded player um, than Barry, which may be the right assessment. It may be wrong. I don't know, but I think that that's what they were thinking. They got a good enough deal on Barry that I can't get too angry about it, but I think they are underselling Bouchard. The one thing that young players are usually able to do is play the power play. Right. That is their exact skill set. That's the thing that if you were talented at the power play in junior, you're probably going to be able to jump onto a power play and be competent relatively quickly. And he was an elite, like a globally elite for his age class power play player uh, in junior. I think they are underselling him and being unnecessarily hesitant Part of this, though, does go back to, and I'm not sure how much of this to put on Ken Holland. It could have been entirely personal. Uh, Adam Larson leaving really threw a massive wrench into the D because he might have these trades might have gone anyway. Uh, but Bear Bouchard Larson is a beautiful right hand side, cost effective. You've got somebody doing everything. We've got two penalty killers. That's the thing that we still lack is unless they're planning on rotating either Bouchard or Barry heavily onto the PK. We only have one guy who is right-handed one right-handed D who plays the PK and he was serviceable at it I don't think he was like an expert I'm a, I'm quite confused about uh Barry and Bouchard on the same decor it just seems like yeah not the kind of thing either Holland or Tippett would be thrilled about but they voluntarily put themselves in this position well I think you'll see Bouchard on the penalty kill a little bit more than people think um and all I'm gonna say about that is you know I wonder if they would have preferred to have Bear back, but perhaps Ethan Bear was not inclined to come back. I'll just leave it at that. I will uh, double down on uh, that little bit of suspicion and say I think, I don't think that they have a problem. I'm not trying to like say that there was a disagreement here. I think that Connor McDavid loves players who have very high intensity personalities and are fitness freaks and I don't think Ethan Bear is either of those things. I think, uh, kind of amuses me that some people are like, oh, the evil Edmonton media implying that he had conditioning issues. That's totally realistic. Many, by definition, half the players in the NHL have below average fitness. Uh, they're not all fitness freaks. Um, I think it's no coincidence that Connor McDavid's entire workout group with Gary Roberts is now are now Edmonton Oilers. I think that uh, he has a hand in the guys that we're getting. I don't think that's crazy. I think there's a lot of value to having a team on the same page as one another, players who trust uh, one another and like even get along and are all on the same page. It's very useful to have your all your players be on the same page, philosophically and playing style-wise. I do have my issues with the execution. I love Ethan Bear. If you have to trade him, so be it. I would rather you got full value back. I like Fogel, but I still think we lost that deal. Um, at least the Shore and Barry signings, who are, again, are uh connor buddies uh both those guys signed for relatively low money compared to what i was expecting but uh 
yeah, I, I it's the execution that I'm quibbling with. That's a good point. Yeah, it's one thing to listen to your captain in terms of who he wants to bring in. It's a matter of how you get there. And other teams in the league have done a much better job in terms of piecing their captain in terms of how they get, who, who they get, sorry, in terms of what's going back to the way. The Oilers have been, the Oilers have been behind other teams in executing that right. And time will tell now and see if this team can be a playoff team. If, if they are, if this team is a playoff team this year, which, they, which I feel they have to be, then great. But if this team isn't the playoff team or if this team is barely getting to the postseason, then there's going to be a lot of questions brought upon Ken Holland, and rightfully so. Okay, so I have I'm just I have a, a question for the three of you then. So if what we're speculating is true, and remember, this is all speculation. We don't know this any of this to be true. But if it is, if... Connor McDavid has a say in some of these acquisitions and like these the kinds of players that he wants and, and that kind of thing. That's fine. I got issues with like players having that kind of control, but that's like an entirely separate thing. So like we don't need to get into that. But if that's the case and he wants his workout buddies here and he wants, you know, players of like that sort of like minded, um, like lifestyle philosophy sort of thing on the team. If, like Avery says, they're not a playoff team. Is that the fault of listening to a 24-year-old hockey player say these are the guys I want to play with? Is that the fault of the coach for deploying the roster poorly? Is that the fault for of the general manager for not doing a better job to figure out like how these players that you're bringing in are actually going to fit in with the lineup? Where does the blame lie if after this, this season, with all of this stuff that's happened, the Oilers don't make the playoffs or they like squeak into the first round and get punted again? Avery, I want to start with you. What do you think? Oh, I think I think there's a, I think that we blame evenly for both Holland and Tippett because they're the guys who, at the end of the day, are going to assemble this team and make sure this team is executing properly. But it's going to be I think they'll be it'll, it'll be both sides that you can blame on that aspect. I feel, but you know what? I don't blame Connor for wanting these guys because he wants to win with. Well, again, if he does say that, he does want to play with his guys who he likes and who he feels comfortable with. So I feel it's going to be a little more blame towards Tippett and towards Holland because these are guys who've been in the league for 20-plus years who should know how to assemble this team to become a cup contender and not a team that is going in as a 89-point team or, heaven forbid, a 77-point team that is struggling to even beat the Kraken. Okay. Alex, what do you think? Well, I, I think... I think there's blame to go around for everybody if this team misses the playoffs. Um, look, I, I don't blame Connor McDavid fully, like, for expressing his desires, right? Um, but also, he knows the pull that he has. So if these moves backfire, you're obviously not going to fire McDavid. He's the best player in the world. But I think he's not going to be in a position to be frustrated publicly and blast the team when, you know, his guys are the ones here. Um, you know, we know how he feels about Duncan Keith, Zach Hyman, Warren Fogle. Like, these are his guys. And for the most part, like, I really like the Hyman edition, and I like the Fogle edition. And there's a lot of risk to Duncan Keith, but we've talked about it many times on this podcast. I think there's a path to success there. Not guaranteeing it, but there's a path. Um, but if they miss the playoffs, I I think you will see a new head coach and a new general manager. I just I think you will see Ken Holland move upstairs if they miss the playoffs, um, and I think you'll see Dave Tippett retire on on his own. 
Um, again, he is entering the final year of his contract. That has not gotten a lot of traction, but he has a three-year deal to coach the Oilers. This is year three. Uh, and so far, look, they've gotten to the playoffs twice. Four. I can't argue with results. They were in the second place in the Pacific and then second place in the North. Like They have found a way to make the postseason, which was a foreign concept uh, in northern Alberta for a decade plus. So there's a little bit of credit there. But if this team misses the playoffs again, or if they go in and they lose in four or five games in the first round, like there has to be some sort of tan- tan- yeah, tangible change there. Um, and I think that falls on the coach and the general manager more than it does the player. Because at the end of the day, McDavid can make his suggestions, but it's Holland that's pulling the trigger on the moves, and it's Tippett that's the point in the lineup. So if things, you know, barring major injury, you know, things go bad this season, then I think those are the two that you look at. I will kind of echo that, just maybe put a few exclamation marks behind it, in that this was the summer of Ken. Like, say what you want about how Ken handled last year's deadline. He set himself up wonderfully for this summer. He had loads of cap space, loads of options, and these are the decisions he's made. So I think... It's not just making the playoffs. I'll be shocked if they miss the playoffs because as much as I don't like some of the the moves that he's made this summer, I've liked other of the moves. I think the Hyman one in particular is uh, is great. Um, and the division's incredibly soft. But I think they need to not only make the playoffs, I think they need to win a round. And if they get knocked out in round two, it had better be extremely competitive. I think that uh, the bar is very high for at this point of the Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl, together in their primes at the same time run um i'm basically think it's third round or that's for sure going to be it for Tippett, and maybe holland too as far as uh the mcdavid question i think it's really interesting i don't have a clear answer on it um i don't blame the oilers for i don't blame a team in edmonton alberta for giving connor mcdavid special say over player personnel moves i think both us being edmonton and him being connor are unique situations, and they combine to create an extremely unique situation. But at the end of the day, it's still up to management to execute. And like uh, we were talking before the podcast started, both uh, Pittsburgh's big guns and Chicago's big guns have made requests of management that management denied. Pittsburgh, Crosby made it clear he did not want Flurry to get uh, to go to Vegas. Flurry went to Vegas anyway. Crosby then made it clear to Hextall he wanted uh, Flurry brought back. Flurry's not coming back. Um, and even if you aren't willing to say no to Connor, it's still up to management to execute. If we got to go get Duncan Keith, so be it. I think we should have got a better deal. I think we should have got more for Ethan Bear. I think we should have, it's, you know, I could go on uh, with, with the list here. Um, so I think some of that is definitely on Connor. If when he finally departs, he shrugs and says, well, management couldn't put a winning team around me. I don't know. I think I hope he finds himself a mirror before he makes those comments. But since I haven't heard him say that yet, um, I don't know. I, I would just say that I guess that responsibility is split. It makes sense to me that you listen to McDavid, but you still have to do a good job of implementing his general wishes. Well, I'll, I'll say this. They have six top six NHL forwards. They haven't had that since 2016-17, right? Like, is that... Do they have six? I think they might have five. I, I was going to say, is that, is that Cassian one of those, or is he... How do you feel about Yamamoto? Is he a solid top six? Forward? I think he's a, a decent second line winger. Like I, I think he was battling some injury issues, and I think you saw that with the lack of finish in the second half. I would suggest that the wrist was a little more banged up than was let on, and I think there was a reason that he missed those games directly before the Winnipeg playoff series. 
Um, but I think when he's on, he does a lot of things well and scores. You know, if he gets you 40 points a year and does all the little things well on the four check, creates all those turnovers, I don't know how you don't look at him as a second-line winger. Um, he's going to have to do right. it this year. Talk me into it. Right. He's going to have to do it this year. But I think the injury played a bit of a factor in the second half of this past season because he was on pace the first half. He looked like he was going to put up some pretty good numbers again. Yeah, and I like uh, Fogle, I like Ryan, um, I like Archibald. Uh, I think their forwards are good. Their issue is on the back end, and in some ways I can't wait for the season to start because I think Bouchard is going to kill it fairly quickly out of the gate, and I look forward uh, to celebrating that. And I think either way, CeCe and Keith are going to cause some people to just shut up for a bit. Either way, whether they're awesome or whether they are the opposite of that. Um, my biggest issue with Holland this summer, I, again, I strongly reject the idea that the team's worse. But I do think there was uh, a missed opportunity. I thought that there were moves that could have been made that would have made us a cup favorite. Not a, man, I hope this team can make it to the second round this year. Maybe even get out. I think we should have been talking about, could we get by Vegas or Colorado to represent the West in the final? Yeah. And I... Would be surprised if we do that, and it's not. If it, I'd be surprised if we're a betting favorite. I'll put it that way, and I think we should have been. Well, with the talent that we already had in place, and the cap space, and the guys who are available, some of which are still available, I think we should have been a betting favorite. It is a real tragedy that Clefbaum got hurt. I said earlier it was Larson deciding to leave, but I think that was predicated on uh, Clefbaum being hurt. I actually thought the defense was looking great when he was healthy, and the team had this fantastic path and uh his injury really de derailed that i don't like the way holland's responded to it but i think it's only fair to point out that um it really everything started going differently than i wanted it to uh when Clefbaum's injury was announced okay so here's my COVID other... didn't help either COVID really hurt the others uh, yeah okay so here's my other question then um looking at obviously what the others have now where they're at um, they have no projected cap space. Um, the, we're, we're, we are tapped out. Uh, what if you, if there was say some imaginary money kicking around, which there is because of Clef Bomb's, uh, LTIR status, I suppose. Uh, what's the biggest need? Oh, it's a goalie. And you can't give me a, you can't give me a list of things. What's the single biggest need that the Oilers have right now? It's a starting goalie. It, it that like, look, you we can talk about the questions on defense all we want, but a Nurse Barry, Keith CC, Russell Bouchard defense isn't going to be elite. It's not going to be great, but I don't think it's going to be the worst defense in the NHL like a lot of people think it's going to be. Um, I think it's going to be in that average to below average range this year. But I'm concerned about the net mining in a big way. Mike Smith was outstanding last year, and honestly. He, he won me over last season. He played great. He changed. You know, he wasn't stubborn. He changed the way he prepared, changed his style. Um, he was good for them, and I have no problem bringing him back. I like Miko Koskinen more than most people do, but it sure looked to me like the team lost all of its confidence in Koskinen in the late portion of 2020-21, and I don't know if you can trust him to come back and start 45 games like he may be required to. Um you know, I think this team had an avenue to add a goaltender. I know they tried hard on Darcy Kemper. They weren't willing to meet um, Colorado's bid, which was a first and Connor Timmins and a third. Would have been a first, third, and Broberg or Bouchard from Edmonton. I wouldn't have made that deal. I don't blame Holland for not making it, but 
you know, you miss out on all the free agent goaltenders. You miss out on the one trade option. Like, this is a team that was very much interested in both Kemper. I They had a lot of interest in Linus Olmark. Obviously, the deal he got in Boston was too rich for them. I don't blame him for that. Um, I don't really don't blame him for that either. I wouldn't have paid Olmark that money. But um, that's what they need. They don't have a number one goalie right now. Smith and Koskinen have gotten to the playoffs two years in a row. Don't see why they can't do it a third. But you're going to be in tough to win playoff rounds when you don't have a number one goalie. And asking a 39-year-old Mike Smith to continue to turn back the clock in what clearly looked like an outlier season is a pretty big risk. I agree with Alex. Asking a goalie again, asking a goalie who's going to turn 40 to, uh, to do that again is very tough. And he's a goalie who, in the past few years, has had more seasons of either low 900 or sub 900 save percentages. That's a very tough thing to ask for. This team completely missed on all the good goaltending options this free agency. And yeah, it's going to be tough to ask Smith and Koskin. We already know that Koskin has struggled high glove side. And, you know, a goaltender who's six foot seven. Should not be beaten as high as much as Koskinen is. That makes me want to pull my hair out. But I agree. This team needs a goaltender in some form of fashion. And this is a tandem that, yeah, it can get you to the playoffs. But can you go into a series against the Golden Knights or against the Kraken or against whoever else and beat those teams with Smith and Koskinen? I'm not convinced you can. I uh, agree, but there's a huge asterisk on that. I don't think Holland should do anything about it for the near future. And here's why. Other than Mrazek and uh, Nedeljkovic, who I thought I would have happily paid those prices for either of those dudes, um, I thought that all the goalies who went, to my surprise, got way more than I was expecting them to. I thought we'd still see COVID-suppressing contract prices. That didn't happen. I'm mostly glad that uh, Holland passed on the people who were available. And the reason isn't because I trust Koskinen or Smith. It's because I like Skinner and Konovalev. I think uh, Skinner, I think some people are sleeping on. He won AHL Goalie of the Month one month and was clearly one of the AHL's top five starters, which is what you want from a 23-year-old. Um, if you kids at home aren't familiar with Konovalev, he's been a very good starter in the KHL for the last three years. He has very promising stats and is also 23. These are two young goalies who are the exact age that you want to see goalies take a step at. I think that combination of Staylock and Smith and uh, Koskinen We'll get us through to January, at which point I'm hoping one of those kids is able to take a leap and, uh, and join the big squad. If that isn't the case, then it's time for Holland to look at acquiring a goalie at the deadline. There's always guys available at the deadline. Um, that It's not that I'm thrilled about Smith and Koskinen. I think Smith, I totally agree. He won me over last year, too. His, even his playmaking got good again. Like, the year before, it was terrible, and it actually seemed like an asset this year. Um, and again, he's one of like McDavid's workout buddies. He's that intense guy, and they're trying to build a culture of intensity. Fine, Smith fits that perfectly. I do think uh, he's going to regress. Even if he has a good year, I doubt he has a second straight career year. Maybe Koskinen bounces back. Maybe Stalock still has it. But really, we're looking to hopefully one of those kids on the farm can join him. I think that's the, the source of our salvation. And if not, hopefully prices are cheaper at the deadline than they are right now because they're exorbitant in the summer. So I would uh, spend our remaining... Uh, after you take Kleffbaum into account, it'll be $5.5 million of cap. I think that third line, as much as it's looking better, um, I would like to see Katian moved out and a stronger third line option brought in. I personally really like Thomas Tatar. I know he's not your traditional third liner, but he could easily move into the top six, and he has 
Well, he doesn't have a defensive reputation. The lines he has been on for the last three years get fantastic defensive results, so he's at least not a liability. Um, I think he would just be great injury insurance for that top six. And uh, I still really hope we get Ryan Murray. I think that, well, I think Keith is at least a decent chance that he's better than some people are saying he's going to be. He's also 38 and coming up two disappointing seasons. It's not impossible that he takes another step back. I think we should have some insurance in case that happens. I think Ryan Murray would be ideal for it. So that's probably what I would be targeting if I were suddenly to Freaky Friday Ken Holland. Um, quickly, I do think they have talked to Ryan Murray. Um, obviously, the price is going to have to come down on that. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if they added another defenseman and another forward on bar- bargain contracts as August continues on. I think they want another penalty-killing left winger. Um, I think the defenseman will be Slater Cuckoo, but I do know that they have interest in Ryan Murray. Now, whether or not the price gets to a manageable, call it $1.5 million, remains to be seen. Um, interesting, though, talking about the goalies, maybe they can go get Philip Grubauer. Um, because Seattle ha- Seattle has already screwed up, and the Grubauer contract was rejected by the NHL um, due to salary cap increases in a couple of seasons. Um, there's a $1.5 million increase between 2022-23 and 23-24 that exceeds 25% of the first-year salary, so the contract has to be restructured. Um, I believe, technically, that makes him a UFA again. Granted... I'm sure they'll figure things out, but yeah, I guess Grubauer's on the market again, if you're interested. That That is a fascinating development. Way to break the story. Let me just, <laughs> I, I'm afraid I will now have to run and leave the original riggers to wrap this one up, but I just want to quickly throw out, what's the point in Slater Cuckoo? We need a third-line left defenseman who's good enough to cover for Keith if it turns out Keith can't handle the second pairing. I don't mind Lajeson on the third line. I don't like Russell, or I don't mind Russell on the third pairing. I don't mind Cuckoo on the third pairing. I don't feel good about any of those guys stepping up to cover for Duncan Keith. And in my opinion, if we're not getting another defenseman good enough to cover for Duncan Keith on the second pair, then why not just stick with uh, Russell and Lajeson? I'm not sure what Cuckoo really adds to us, unless we're losing one of those guys in some other move. Well, remember. On that note, I'm going to jump off. Blessings to the other three of you. Uh, it's been a pleasure as always. I look forward to listening to this podcast and hearing how you guys talk about me when I'm not around to defend myself. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thanks uh, to Steven for joining us. I had no idea he was leaving early. What I was just thinking, uh, I don't know if he noticed, he called him Duncan Teeth instead of Duncan Keith, so now I'm always going to call him Duncan Teeth. So here we are. Um, I-, I will say okay. this. To his point on Cuckoo, like, he's he's right, but they only have so much money, right? Like, mm-hmm. unless Ryan Murray comes down and is willing to take a one-by-one or one-by-one-and-a-half, like, it's probably not going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. Or unless they can move Cassian. And they're not going to have the second buyout window on Koskinen like a lot of people thought. Um, Warren Fogle obviously signed on Saturday to a three-year deal, and Cooper Marodi did not elect for arbitration about an hour ago, so... Yeah, I saw that. Okay, yeah, I think the Cassian angle is something that I wish they would explore. <laughs> oh boy, um, because I just I don't see the value for that money. But anyway, um, okay, is there anything else that we wanted to touch on here today? Um, I I just I I want to mention on the goaltending thing. Like, I wouldn't be shocked if they wait until the deadline. Um, because I don't like. Every, 
wear a helmet when you ride a bike, but people think Chicago is going to compete for a Stanley Cup now. Um, I don't think they're going to make the playoffs. So Mark Andre Fleury could be a guy at the deadline to keep an eye on. But also, like all this talk about Jonas Corposalo with Columbus, A, I think is ridiculous because I think Koskinen's a better goalie. But B, both him and Merz Lincolns are free agents next year. So when Columbus is predictably out of it, that could be a team that you see a trade with, you know, six, seven months from now. Yeah, to their benefit to get something for for, for the, the player that they're not going to be able to re-sign. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, they're um, not going to keep both. No, I you mentioned there the ideal about Chicago. How, yeah, I think it's wild that Chicago will be a playoff team. That is not going to be a playoff team. And you mentioned Fleury right here, Alex. He's someone I know I mentioned the older goalies, Mike Smith. Marc-Andre Fleury is the guy who has defied time. He's the guy who is the, the exception to the rule of getting a chance at an older goaltender. He won a Vezina last year. He is still finding a way to be an elite netminder. And if he, if he is someone that's available to the Oilers, I trade for him every single day and twice on Sunday. Yeah. I yeah, mean, I think that... Sorry, I think that no, seems... I think that seems reasonable, right? Like, I, I don't think you would find too many people who wouldn't make that deal if it works. It just feels right now, like, I think, Alex, I'm with you on this. I think we do wait till the deadline or, like, into the season to kind of to see what happens. Um, but I... It just feels like they missed an opportunity somehow. Yeah, I mean, I, I think coming into this offseason, like, I don't know. I I think why a lot of people are so upset, and to a degree, like, I'm not, like, I don't hate the offseason like a lot of people do. I don't love it like a lot of people do. I, like, I'm kind of in the middle with it. I think they're a better team, but I'm not sure by how much. Um, but they took on a lot of risk, right? Like, look at some of the questions that this team has. They, they didn't address goaltending, um, which had been talked about time after time. Their defense has a lot more question marks on it now. Like, they're taking on some pretty big risk here um, with this roster. Like, people remember the old 506 team, how good that team was all season long, and they couldn't get a damn save to save their lives? Like, part of me wonders if this team may <laughs> run into some goaltending issues because I don't think Smith can handle the workload of an 82-game season. It's not a knock on him. Like, that happens when you're in your late 30s. Like, very few goalies can do that. That era is over. Well, and the just the, the the odds ultimately of him having anything close to the kind of season that he had last year are quite slim. Right, right, one hundred percent. He played out of his mind last year, and I think we can all agree on that. And he's good. I, I, I mean, he wasn't nearly he wasn't nearly as bad as I thought he was going to be. He ended up being actually quite a lot better than I thought he was going to be. Um, but I don't see that he's going to be able to do that again. And so, like, if they're hanging their hat right now on Koskinen and Smith, like, being the guys, they're going to run into some trouble. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's crazy to think that Koskinen could bounce back this year to a degree. Because, um, like, remember, he posted a 917 save percentage in 2019-20 and had some terrific performances for that team down the stretch. And it was, like, it was a shocker when Mike Smith started game one of that Chicago series. Like, there was no merit to starting Mike Smith in that game. He had been outplayed considerably by Koskinen. So, like, Koskinen was dealt a tough hand this year with Smith being hurt for the first 10 games and him having to play every game. And, you know, I just don't think he was ever, ever able to find his stride. And we know what Koskinen is. He's not a, a number one everyday goalie. He's a really good 1B. 
uh, and he couldn't be that early in the season and never was able to find his rhythm. So, like, I wouldn't be stunned if Koskinen was solid to good this season for the Oilers, but you need Mike Smith to be more than he's capable of, and if he can't be, Koskinen's got to play every other night, and we know um, he's not capable of that. Look at his numbers after the Talbot trade back in 2017-18. Or maybe it was 2018-19. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then look at his numbers this year when he had to be the guy. He can't do it. So there's risk there. Yeah. Right. Like this Oilers team right now, this Oilers team is right now built to outscore their problems. And I don't think you want this team going in every single night trying to win every game 5-4, 6-5. No, you have the offense to do it. But at the same time, that's not like that may get you to the playoffs, but you're not going to beat teams when it comes time to lock it down, right? Like, I mean, I also think they need to be a little more – need to be willing to take more risk in the playoffs. That's a whole different story. I'm not going to get into that today. But, um, yeah, you're not going to win a championship that way. You're just not. So, you may be able to beat up no. on Arizona like that, but I – was, I was thinking about, like, what Avery said there about them winning games 5-4-6-5. Like, that's what's going to happen, right? They're going to – if, if the, this is their goalie tandem going into the season, they're good – and they have, I think – I think they have five and a half top six forwards. I'll give like Yamamoto a point five on that because I'm not 100 percent convinced on him yet. But like they're definitely. He's short? I'm just gonna leave <laughs> that there. Uh, no, I just like so so they have five bona fide top six guys, which is the first time I think we can say that about the Oilers in a very long time. Like it's been a while since since you can say they basically have like two complete lines. On top, and that's great. And they've added some pieces for the bottom six. Things are fine, and they're gonna score because look at who's on those top two lines. So they're gonna score lots of goals, or they should be able to. But if the goaltending is the question, the way that we think it's going to be, they're also gonna get scored on. So like playing Ottawa last year and winning eight five, and people oh they beat Ottawa nine times. I'm like yeah, they sure did, and they didn't outplay Ottawa in all of those games. They got they almost got beat by their own goaltending at least three times, and that's sort of the danger. And then we're getting out of obviously the like the North Division and playing all of the teams again, and you can't go into a game against uh, the Boston Bruins um, with goaltending that's questionable like this when you have lines that are going to be, you know what I mean? Like you just, you just can't do it. And so I think, I think what's going to happen this season, seeing the shift back to a regular schedule, back to regular divisions, back to playing everybody and all that kind of stuff. Like how are the Edmonton Oilers going to not let the Tampa Bay lightning run roughshod over them? Well, that's, well, Tampa Bay is a different beast, but like, I don't know. I think the North division is better than what the Pacific's going to be this year. Oh, I think so too. But I also think that we're gonna be playing like they're just gonna be playing teams that they didn't have an opportunity to play at all, right? They're gonna play the Colorados. They're gonna, you know, like they're gonna be able to see those teams. And I think that what's gonna happen is that goaltending is going to hinder more than it will help. Yeah, I mean that's fair. I, I think Holland's gonna have to address this. Um, you know, and I do think Alex Stalock has a better chance than people think to play games. Um, like that's a guy that. You know, took the load as a starting goaltender for Minnesota in 2019-20 prior to the COVID pause because Devin Dubnik couldn't handle the role anymore. Uh, and he put them in position to make a real run for the playoffs. Obviously, his time in the Edmonton bubble didn't go well uh, in that series against the Canucks. But I don't know. Like, I thought he was pretty good in 2019-20 for Minnesota. Like, no, he's not a, a legit starting goalie. But 
like he's a guy that you may have to consider for this team because at the end of the day, like I'm with you. I, I think we know what Mike Smith is and he is very much peaks and valleys. And when he's in those valleys, like you don't have a guy that can bail him out and run with it right now. You just like Koskinen's not that guy. He just isn't. No, I think that's fair. Um, so I was just thinking here about just the podcast in general, uh, and just it's the beginning of August, and I unless big things happen, I don't necessarily foresee us maybe recording anything from now until like the end of August. Uh, so here's my question, and it's unfortunate that Steve had to leave because I would have liked his input on this as well. So but with what we have right now on the roster, what are your predictions for the Oilers for this season? You want me to go first or Avery? I would like Avery to go first because he's been quiet for a very long time. Avery, talk more. All right. Uh, I will say, you know, really, you know, be realistic. I think Edmonton will find a way to finish second in the division behind the Vegas Golden Knights. But I think that the Seattle Kraken, or I think either Seattle or Calgary will be battling for third in that division. Bikes, see Edmonton and Vegas in 1-2 with Vegas still being far ahead of Edmonton for a number one in that division. And so in terms of playoffs, then, what's your prediction? Uh, in terms of predictions, I will say they do get out of the first round. But the big thing is, can they win a second round series and get to a conference final? Mm. I think the jury is still out on that. So right now, I will say this team does make it to the second round of the playoffs. Okay. Alex, what do you got? Yeah, yeah I think they're going to finish second in the Pacific behind Vegas. Um like Vegas to me is clearly the best team, and then there's Edmonton, and I think the special teams of the Oilers are going to make that a closer race for the Pacific Division crown than people think going into the season. Uh, I know there's a lot of people on the Seattle Kraken. I don't think they're going to be that good. I think Seattle's forwards, for the most part, are bad. Um, the defense is good, and there's goaltending there, but I don't think that's a playoff team right now. Um, I think it's actually going to be Los Angeles who comes in third. You know, Calgary is going to be in that mix too, but I'm not really sure what that Flames team is going to look like this year. Um, but you know, for for right now, I'll say it's it's Vegas, Edmonton, Los Angeles, Calgary, Seattle um, in the Pacific Division, and I think Edmonton beats LA in the first round, but I think they follow Vegas in the second round. I just think the Golden Knights are the better team, and uh, unless there's a goaltending addition, I don't think the Oilers have what it takes to get to the conference final, which. Shouldn't be the case at this point in time, but unfortunately it is. But I guess, you know, winning a round is a legitimate improvement. And, you know, if they compete and lose in six or seven games in the second round, I, I think it kind of is what it is when you go up against a team like Vegas. Okay, so here's my last question then. If they, I think, because I think they'll make the playoffs too, I don't, the Pacific Division is just bad. Like, that's, yeah. there's, it's just so bad that, like, if they don't make the playoffs, we got bigger issues. So they'll make the playoffs. If they don't make it out of the first round, what happens to Dave Tippett and Ken Holland? I think Tippett's gone. Like, uh, like I was just saying, I think this is the last year to see Dave Tippett as head coach of the Oilers, either retirement or going to hear we're not going to bring him back for 2022-2023. But I think also, too, I think um, Ken Holland, job security, it may, I'm not going to say he'll be fired, but I think he'll be under a lot more scrutiny if this team doesn't get out of the first round. And I think 2022-2023 will be his last chance. I think the leash will be tightening up on him much shorter as it should be 
But yeah, I think this is the end of Tippett if this team doesn't get out of the first round this coming season. Yeah, if they go if they go one and done three straight years, I I think that you know the plug is pulled on on Dave Tippett. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if if Ken Holland gets a lot of heat and maybe gets moved into a, a president of hockey operations role. Um, and whether it's Keith Gretzky or somebody from the outside takes over as GM, I, I guess it all depends on how the season goes. Like if they limp into the playoffs and lose in the first round, then I, I think there has to be some change. Um, you know, they could get goalied again and lose in six or seven games, and then you you know you figure things out. But you know, again, we talked about it earlier earlier in the podcast. Tippett's on his last year of, of his coaching contract, and. Um, you know, I think there's a little more pressure on him after some things that happened last year. Um, I don't think he was the best at communicating with that roster. I, I, I don't think everybody was on the same page. And I think there were some players that were legitimately frustrated with the head coach. And um, he clearly had some some real input on the way that this roster is put together. And if you know they failed to get out of the first round again, Ken Holland doesn't normally change coaches, but I think he would in this situation. I don't think he would have a choice if they lost in the first round for the third straight year, especially if they finish second in the division and lose to a young Kings team that they should be better than. That's three straight years you lost to a team that you're on paper better than in the playoffs. That can't happen. Um, I, then I think Tippett definitely goes. And again, depending on how it goes, Holland could be under some pressure too. I think they definitely give him that fourth year, but there's going to be some fire there uh, if they lose in the first round. Okay. Um, I think we should probably wrap it up. Before we do, um, I just, for anyone who made it this far uh, through this episode, uh, if there's anybody out there who's interested in uh, contributing to the Oilers Rig on like a regular or semi-regular basis, uh, slide into our DMs and let me know, and we will uh, be in touch. Um, mostly just because Alex can't keep being the only person <laughs> writing anything, um, and Avery, Avery's got, <laughs> like, I, as you heard at the beginning, 9,000 jobs. Um, and, uh, I just, I don't know. We'll get there eventually. Uh, so if anyone is interested, uh, in, in helping us out, we had, we brought someone new in, um, just recently. I don't even know his name. Uh, on Twitter, he goes by Oilers Rational. So maybe we should have him on the podcast one of these days. Um, but he, I saw a tw- uh, like a Twitter thread of his just with some, some stats stuff. And I thought it was really interesting. So I reached out. Uh, so if there's something that you're interested in, like looking at or examining or exploring and you want to, you know, get back into that kind of thing, or you've done it before, maybe you've, you know dropped off because writing about the Oilers is an exercise in futility but you want to give it a try again let us know uh we would love to uh we would love to accommodate uh we can't pay you anything uh other than in jokes but uh we'll do our if we ever make any money we'll we will pay you uh but I can't promise that um that's all we have for this week uh I don't know when we'll be back on the podcast I was assumed closer to the end of August because I don't anticipate much happening between now and so if okay so if we're looking at the end of August when this is a hilarious thing to ask on the air, but when do you, uh, is this getting released? Sunday, Monday? When is this getting released? I'm going to put it out tomorrow, which is August the second, right? Okay. Well, if it's going, okay. if it's going it on is, August yeah. the second, then my post will be up by uh, the morning. So most of you will probably seen it, but this is going to be my last go around on the podcast um, because I'm doing other things now. That will be clear in in time. <laughs> Maybe someday we'll be able to have Alex as a guest on our podcast to talk about some things. Uh, we'll I could see. just put on um, like fake glasses and like a voice changer. We could do that too. Perfect. Um, yeah. So I, w- I wasn't going to mention anything. So anyway, yeah, I'm going to post this uh, tomorrow morning, uh, and everyone's going to listen to this conversation that we just had. <laughs> anyway. 
Um, yeah, that's all we have for this week, uh, and maybe this month, maybe forever, who knows? Um, but, uh, thank you so much for listening. Um, yeah, you can find us, you can find me on Twitter at, uh, MIG14. I yell about a bunch of stuff right now. Avery? You can find me on Twitter at AVRY. I just posted, I just posted on my Twitter page, my last piece for SI, looking at the top 10 hockey commercial of all time, and my editor, Stephen Ellis, used a picture of the Ovechkin commercial where his head is in a locker talking to a kid asking did you get the crazy light skate which is a very disturbing commercial as to why CCM said Alex we're gonna only put your head in this commercial in this kid's locker <laughs> I forgot about that commercial uh, I did too now. until just right now thanks for reminding me <laughs> that was the 2000s were a fun time um yeah and I'm at Alex underscore Thomas 14 um yeah you can go there but you're probably not gonna find what you're looking for <laughs> <laughs> and on that note thank you so much for listening and we'll see you soon